everyone, and welcome to the Director's Club Podcast, preamble to the conversation I had with the great Eric's Antoine. He's a first-timer, but wow, what an incredibly smart and articulate guest. I, I think you're going to enjoy um, the conversation we had. So before we begin, this episode is sponsor-free until the next newcomer, which I'm, I'm lining up as we speak via email. So that will definitely be at the top of the next episode or, or yeah, possibly for the upcoming bonus episode that you're going to hear in your feed within the next day or so. It's, it's, it's actually going to be, um, one of the cross pollinated episodes, I would say <laughs> with uh, pop culture club and directors club. Since, uh, I had the pleasure of talking with two directors that have put out two of my favorite films of the year so far. So I'm really excited for you to hear that. It's 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 quite a treat. The interviews are short, uh, but very sweet, and I will also include quick reviews of the films as well as some musical highlights since both films rely heavily on their love of rocking out. Both happen to involve bands, so that should probably give you a clue as to who the directors are. These are um, new releases that are opening up in the Chicagoland area very, very soon. Um, Friday, April 22nd, to be exact, I believe, is the date. Yes. So stay tuned for that. It's a really great bonus episode coming very soon. And, of course, visit NowPlayingNetwork.net since other great shows, as I mentioned each and every time, they keep putting out great content that I know you're going to enjoy. Jim Hankey's Vinyl Emergency is still going very strong. In particular, he put out an, an interview episode with someone who gets name-checked a lot here. Uh, of course, I'm talking about Nick DiGilio of WGN Radio, who is primarily responsible for me getting into movies in the first place. And he's also finally going to be a guest on this show uh, on the first episode of next month, uh, the month of May, in which him and I are going to talk about Scorsese for hopefully close to two hours. His his time is limited. He usually does show prep, and I'm going to visit him whenever I can. But it's it's going to be a real treat and a real highlight and uh you know if we don't get to if we don't get to cover everything in great detail expect another Scorsese episode in the next year or two he's going to probably have to have a part two much like some of the other directors i've covered this year um so yeah be sure to subscribe to Vinyl Emergency since nearly every episode is worth your time well i should say every episode is worth your time for sure um and we also have supporting characters hosted by Bill Ackerman and Movie Madness hosted by Eric Childress. Both of them um, put out have been putting out shows a little more sporadically, but get excited for whatever they're, they've got on the docket. Then there will also be a couple of Pop Culture Club interviews coming, like I mentioned with that bonus episode, but um, also I'm going to be interviewing Shelby Cyphers, a wonderful um, indie musician that I think you should know more about. Yeah. Uh, that's going to be cool. So I do have to thank um, Bill Ackerman and Al Tchaikovsky for recording a terrific discussion on Adam Agoyan. I, I found it thoroughly, thoroughly interesting, enlightening, entertaining, and I, I expect to check out more of Agoyan's work as a result of listening to their enthusiasm. And the response to that sort of um, almost like a spin-off episode where I'm not involved, it's been very, very positive, so... You know, that could again happen in the future, whether if it's with those two guests or not. But I I couldn't have been more grateful for their hard work and um, 
for them putting their effort to put all that together. And I do have to apologize in case you were one of the first couple hundred downloaders who may have heard my lackluster editing skills in that particular episode. The first couple hundred people, they might have gotten a little snippet after they talk about Felicia's journey on that episode. I missed a section where they took a quick break for a few minutes and I was listening to it on my ride home from work and I <laughs> I started laughing out loud realizing what I'd done. So I, I quickly fixed it pretty much the moment I got home so anyone who downloads the Adam McGoin episode now won't hear that large gap of silence. I, I really don't know how I missed it, honestly. I, But I think part of me in hindsight, intended it as an homage to the work of Antonioni or Sofia Coppola somewhere or Ty West's House of the Devil, just just to, you know, give you some space, give you a little time to reflect. Maybe that was why I subconsciously put that um, silence in there. You know, I, I know a lot of podcasts embrace a lot of edits, but I really try hard not. Well, I hope you're excited for this next episode, which you're about to hear. I gotta say it was an interesting and very difficult um, experience for me to go back and rewatch M. Night's work while I had the flu, but it's also because I'm not a huge fan of this director. Uh, unlike the majority of dire- directors we've talked about, it's been quite a love fest as of late. So uh, this is this is an interesting change of pace. It's an interesting... Um, you know, defense from Eric's, especially when it comes to the happening. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty easygoing. You know, I think, I think I bring up reservations with signs and a couple other films, but the only time I sort of really find myself taken aback by praise is in any context revolving around the happening. I, I just, I despise it and you'll hear more about it. But at the same time, uh, I found myself strangely embracing the lady in the water in a way that it's not unlike my love for an absurd movie like The Lake House, in which a magical time-traveling mailbox saves the day. So every now and then, uh, a movie will surprise even myself, and Lady in the Water happens to be that. So, um, yeah, you're going to hear all about that and a whole lot more as we delve into another complex and fascinating filmmaker that, again, I'm I'm very glad that Eric's came on to talk about. He was a delight, and although this is definitely a longer episode. I hope you enjoy the talk. Uh, I know that Aaron Sorkin himself wasn't crazy about it, which is why we're no longer working together, I'm sad to say, but that's okay. It was great to have him involved for that April 1st episode, which I hope you've heard by now. It includes the participation of such wonderful folks like Nat and Regina and the co-host who shall not be named. So Godspeed, everyone. Here's the latest episode of Director's Club on Mr. M. Night Shyamalan. Welcome, everybody, to the Director's Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski, and we are joined today by a new guest making his debut appearance here on the show to defend, um, to some degree, a very (laughs) controversial and often divisive filmmaker who I consider to be an interesting oddity of sorts. Um, this is the first episode in a while where we're going to discuss a director that I have very mixed feelings about in general, so I'm really looking forward to exploring that further. 
Uh, I don't outright hate this director's work like some do, but I do find it to be incredibly flawed. But let's uh, (laughs) get to the guest that I'm very excited to talk with. It's an honor to be talking with uh, independent filmmaker Eric Antoine. That is correct. How are you doing, uh, Jim? Oh, I'm I'm doing great. Yeah. Like I like I was telling you earlier, like it's an honor for me to be here because uh, I've I've wanted to chat movies with you for a while now and um and well, specifically about this filmmaker. So, <laughs> I think it's going to be fun. Yeah, you contacted me um I don't know if it was initially over email, but I know you sent me a a Facebook message um sort of sparking this desire to tackle the work of the one and only M. Night Shyamalan. Yes. <laughs> that, is, that, that is his name. <laughs> we will refrain from the Shyamalama ding-dong crap. <laughs> yeah, please, please let's do it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, quite enough of that one. Yeah, I, I did too. Like even, even in the midst of some movies I wasn't crazy about, I just found that to be kind of a ridiculous uh, joke amongst people who mm. wanted to just insult the guy, and I mean, I know he's got a bit of an ego, ego and he he has he has some issues, I think, as a filmmaker. But we're gonna get there. We're gonna get there very soon here. Um, so, were you an active member on the Chud forums? Because I'm, I'm I'm assuming we became Facebook friends through like just the wide variety of guests that Patrick knew from from Chud and whatnot. Yeah, I was pretty active back in the day. Um, I mean, I haven't I haven't been on the Chud boards in, I guess, years now. But uh, yeah, I occasionally lurk there. But I don't even know what's going on there. But yeah, I was pretty active. That's uh, that is how I got to uh, I I came to know uh, Patrick, and eventually found my way to the Directors Club podcast. So uh, so yeah, I mean, I, I was very active for a while, and then life kind of got in the way as it does and i no longer had the time to be checking in that regularly i was mostly after a while i was mostly active in one thread they had there which was the b action movie thread oh Um, yeah yeah. i mean that was essentially where i'd mostly post stuff and then after that even that became uh harder to keep up with because of personal work and, and everything else so yeah but that that was back in the day you know that was interesting that was fun yeah, I know it was a it was a big mecca of all sorts of wonderful movie freaks uh, having great dialogues together. So um, I n- I don't I never joined in specifically, but I just know that you know Patrick bonded with a, a great number of individuals that I'm glad to have had on this podcast and you know became uh, friends with. So uh, looking forward to this discussion. I'm. <sighs> So you you also you also mentioned that you're um, uh, an independent filmmaker in your own right. Yes, that is correct. I um, I work with an independent uh, film production company uh, called Pachamama Films. Hmm. Um, and uh, a little history of that: Pachamama is a it's an Aymara, it's a uh, native uh, dialect of um, Aymara is one of the native dialects, indigenous dialects of uh, Bolivia. Oh wow! Yeah, and uh, Pachamama means Mother Earth, so it's uh, it's it's a big uh, important word for uh, for the Bolivian community. 
And uh, we are, in fact, currently based out of uh, Bolivia. That's where our home base is right now in terms of the... And we've been carving out kind of a little niche for ourselves, making quirky genre films, horror films. Um, and we've been doing them locally at a low budget. And it's been, it's, it's been a fun experience. You know, we're, we're starting to branch out. Some of our work has been showcased on uh, Fangoria a couple of times. Um, uh, particularly in one of the one of the last issues of Fangoria. For a while, I thought Fangoria wasn't even publishing anymore. But uh, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't know if it was the the last issue or the one, the second to last issue uh, had a profile on our latest uh, production, which is called Olaya, uh, O L A L L A, uh, based on the Robert Louis Stevenson uh, story about vampires. And um, that one got a nice uh, little write up on Fangoria and stuff. So we're starting to get out there, and we're Great. trying to break from the niche horror film thing into different types of projects. So that's what we're kind of be, what we've been doing. Well, I'll definitely yeah. link to um, the site um, so people can learn more about that uh, production company. That's really cool. Um, and I've also, been, I've also been asking newcomers to the podcast, what film or director really got you excited early on? What sort of sparked your love of cinema to st- either study it further or just consume as much as you can or in your case go on to create your own films well in my case um the direct that that's an interesting question and i um i think i might have an interesting answer the director in question i guess would be my father um oh well because uh the thing is i've i've grown up basically in an environment where i was exposed to film from a very early age my father uh, is an independent filmmaker and uh, he and my uh, stepmother, and I was raised by basically bohemian parents in the Lower East Side of New York. And they were doing like uh, uh, activist documentaries. They made a, a documentary about Haiti in the early 80s called Crick Crack, Tales of a Nightmare, which is it's actually available. You can look up. It's a pretty interesting documentary about the uh, Duvalier regime in Haiti. Hmm. And spending, you know, in my childhood being surrounded by that sort of thing, um, I was that's how I was exposed to film. So essentially that, that's really where that comes from. When I was a kid, I, I thought like I wanted to be an actor, you know, when I was a little kid. Sure. It wasn't until my teen years that I, you know, watching my father work and just getting it from a different perspective that I began to become interested in the idea of actually being behind the scenes. I thought that was more interesting. I still like acting, but not my my main focus. I, I prefer you know, writing, directing, and so on. Like that, that's, that stimulates me a lot more. And I think the first film that I personally saw that uh, inspired me to make my own films, uh, well, it's going to be a pretty cliched answer, but I think that, um, like, somebody that inspired me a little was uh, Tarantino, as I think a lot of young filmmakers were inspired by him. Oh, yeah. And, but it was actually when I saw True Romance, um, and that's actually the first Tarantino film or re- Tarantino-related project I ever saw was True Romance. Mm. And as I was watching it, the way that that script was laid out, the, the personal nature of it, the uh, the the dialogue, the the sassy, like the pop culture references, all that stuff, I realized that I, in screenplays and stories that I'd written already, um, had that element to them. And I <laughs> said, well, this. This guy um, is kind of this is sort of the stuff that I want to do. So 
I began to pay attention to his career um, very closely. And then, well, you know, um, I think a lot of people in the mid-90s, though, were inspired by Tarantino. So, Absolutely. I should let people know, um, just in case they're not used to all the background noise, I decided to open the window, and mm-hmm. you might hear... Uh, you know, various bird calls and children of the neighborhood and lawnmowers. Hopefully nobody's lying in front of a lawnmower. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I, I, I promise, I promise everybody it's not, it's, it's not the window near the tree. Um, so yep. n- no worries. Get a- no, get away from the window. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Oh, boy. I can't wait to talk about that one. But first, <laughs> we have a lot to um, unpack here early on with, with M. Knight. Yes, we um, do. My name is M. Knight Shyamalan. My name is M. Knight Shyamalan. Your bad walking and swing at aliens. My name is M. Night Shyamalan. The happening. I direct like Spielberg, wide awake, or Hitchcock. your first experience watching an M. Night Shyamalan film? I'm guessing it was The Sixth Sense, maybe? Yeah, no, absolutely. Uh, yeah. That, that, um, I think, yeah, no one, none of us had ever heard of him, I think, <laughs> before that movie came out. And, uh, yeah, that was my first experience watching a, a Shyamalan film. And I remember it had a really great trailer. And uh, it was one of those movies that, because I... I'd seen the trailer for it, the TV ads for it, and it had this sort of quality that it made me think maybe of, like, The Shining. I just, like, I like horror films, right? Mm -hmm. So I was very attracted by that trailer, and so I went to see it opening weekend. I think I might have even gone to see it opening night, like a lot of people might have. And, and yeah, I remember really, really liking that movie. It, like, it, it made an impact on me, as it did with many. So it was like, I was like, well, what, this is an interesting film. Who is this guy? You know, like, it was just... Out of the blue, this this weird, this very interesting dramatic thriller that happened to have some really good eerie scenes, and yeah, that was my first experience with Shyamalan. But I immediately liked them. I immediately liked his work. 
Yeah, very similar reaction. I first saw The Sixth Sense opening night with a bunch of friends. And strangely enough, I think it was about a month later, that same group of friends and I saw a movie that was a little similar that I actually prefer. Um, It's called Stir of Echoes with Kevin Bacon. Have you seen that? I have seen it. It's been a while, so I don't remember it very clearly. But um, yeah, I, I, I have seen the movie. I remember that it was pretty good. Yeah, I just, I remember seeing that a month later kind of going, well, this has a little bit more of a sense of a sense of humor and some energy to it. And um, yeah, I, and it, it has like the whole, I'm seeing spirits that are trying to convey some sort of message to me kind of vibe to it. And I believe it was based on a Richard Matheson short story. Um, but yeah, I just, I remember seeing that movie being really taking with it too. But, I mean, The Sixth Sense, that ending got to me, as it did, pretty much the entire audience at the time. The reason people went back to see it, the reason it was one of the biggest box office hits of 1999, was they wanted to confirm whether or not it, you know, the, that ending held up on repute viewings, and if it was effective and accurate again after seeing it. It was one. Of, I think it was. It has to be, and you can correct me if I'm wrong. One of the first movies of that time where everybody I talked to actively said, "I'm going back to the theater to see that one again." Well, I, I mean, I think of the time. It's certainly. I mean, you know, there are movies that like that, but I think uh, yeah. that, that you're right that the phenomena, the reason that film was such a huge hit was because of that. Like, uh, I think... Well, I mean, it's a good movie, word of mouth, obviously, but I think that yeah. what that stay in, like, the top ten or whatever it was, I think it was, like, number one at the box office for, like, a month or two months straight or something like that. And I think, yeah, definitely it was because of the repeat viewings. Like, people were just... They were going back to see it. It was the it was the water cooler movie. I mean, it was the movie that everybody was talking about. I remember I went to see it, and that same... Like, that night, then, like, the next night, I was, like, at the local bar and uh, having a discussion with a bunch of people who had also seen it. I mean, it was the movie that everybody was talking about. So, um, so yeah. And the repeat business definitely played into that. And I, I mean, do you, do you think it holds up? Do, do you think, uh, that once you know the ending, do you think the movie still works? It's tough to say. I'm, I don't want to say I'm being more critical as I've gotten older of, the majority of his films because if I were to base a review of my first viewing experience of The Sixth Sense it would be you know like a four four and a half out of five (laughs) um yeah but there's something about repeat viewings for me that has made it gone down maybe just because I'm hyper aware and I'm trying to I'm trying to just really get to the core of whether or not this movie holds up for me emotionally. And it doesn't quite. I mean, we got a couple more before we get to the success, but at the same time, it's one of those things where it has strengths, and they're very, very um, apparent watching it to this day. And we're going to get to pretty much the strengths, what I consider to be a lot of his strengths. At the same time, there's a scene like 
the stuttering Stanley moment mm-hmm. that just really irks me. And that's yeah. the case throughout a lot of his movies where there's things I love, things I admire, things I can appreciate about him as a director. But I think in terms of a screenplay and just like specific moments that stick out as not working or out of place, that's kind of my main, <laughs> my main beef is just throughout most of his movies, I, there's always a moment where I, it takes me out of it and I go, well, that was a bad choice to include that scene or right. that actor. Um, <laughs> but yeah, right. it's I, I, st- I will still say that I'm not a fan of an ending that really feels the need to spell out everything. Um, even even in something like Signs, where he chooses to cut back to show, like, oh, this is the same alien that was locked in the cupboard. He's mad, and he's back. <laughs> yeah, I, that is true. I don't like that sort of, I don't know, that sort of hand-holding to the mm-hmm. audience. It just it feels like, let us figure that out. We know it, or, you know? Yeah, well, that makes sense. I mean, uh, like I, I agree with you uh, about that to some degree. I mean, I I don't think that it entirely. Uh, certainly, the thing about signs, I do think it's a little bit ham-fisted. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the climax of that movie, yeah, it's pretty ham-fisted. I I uh, I don't have have as much problem with it as others do for other reasons. But we'll obviously get to it when we get to it. Um, we'll be able to discuss it further. We should start at the beginning then, huh? because I mean, if if our first experience with uh, with Shyamalan was uh, the sixth sense, as it was for most people. Um, the, there is one little detail that I remember. I think it was either in the Village Voice or New York Free Press, one of those reviews for the sixth sense that the person in question had already seen Shyamalan's other films, the, mm. the and and made reference to them in in his in his or her review where they mentioned that they were a fan of his already based on those other two films that he'd made. Yeah, so, that's interesting. I, yeah, that is interesting, especially having seen the films. Um, yeah, but, especially like the ending of Wide Awake, kind yeah. of made me go, "Well, that's that's Shyamalan." Yeah, there you go. You, you know. know? <laughs> um, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, but so you haven't actually you didn't get a chance to see Praying with Anger. No, I haven't. I'm curious about it. I did click on the YouTube link, and the quality was not up to snuff. I'm. It, I, it is not. Yeah, I'm hoping at some point in the future, even though I'm not the biggest fan of him, I will see his debut film, because I'm curious about it, for sure. So tell me more about it, since I know you you, you sat down and watched it. Well, I did. I I sat down and watched it. I watched it on YouTube, so just so our listeners will know, it is available on YouTube, and uh, that may be the case for a while, you know, Um, and it is a rather... Uh, not a very great bootleg copy of it, obviously, that they uploaded there, but Mm -hmm. it is the way to get it, as far as I know, so like uh, because, uh, as far as I know, he's—I don't know that he's disowned disowned it necessarily, but um, it's not—it's ne- not really a movie that he talks about or has ever made any kind of effort to put out there. Um, having seen it, maybe I can understand why. I mean, it's—it's it's imperfect. It's a bit rough around the edges. It's the sort of thing where, given his ultimate success, maybe he doesn't really—it's like, yeah, whatever. I don't—you know—I don't need to show that. But the really interesting thing about it, it was released in 1992, uh, and what people tend to, because of the the type of success and how 
how he made the splash the first time, Shyamalan, people tend to forget that he really is of the same... He's a contemporary of, like, Tarantino and um, and Kevin Smith, and he's basically a, a class of 92 Sundance Film Festival guy, like that, that he is from that ilk. Um, yeah, like I, Richard Linkletter or someone like that, too. Exactly. Yeah. Like, mm-hmm. He basically... Comes, I mean, uh, that film has a 1992 release uh, date. I think that's when it like hit the festival circuit. Um, he might have shot it a year or two before that, but the point is that that's when it hit the festival circuit. So he, and that's how he. I mean, the film obviously made enough of an impact that he was able to get some kind of a deal with uh, with Miramax, and uh, that's that's why Wide Awake is a Miramax production. But um, the interesting thing about Praying with Anger is that if you look at it. It has a lot in common with pretty much any any young man's debut film. I mean, uh, like uh, you know, whether it's Tarantino, you know, with with his very personal screenplay for True Romance, or if you want to go that far back and look at like Scorsese with uh, Who's That Knocking at My Door, um, you know, or Mean Streets, that that sort of personal story that touches on on their culture and like where they're coming from and. And how they see things, because Praying with Anger is a story of a young man, a college student, um, played by Shyamalan himself, uh, who is, after his, I believe, yeah, after his father dies, um, his mother uh, sends him to India to, as, the, as an experience, said, says that he should go to India on like a, it's, I guess it's like an exchange student program or something like that, but he basically goes to spend time with a family that's sponsoring him and to study in India for, I guess it's a year. Mm-hmm. Something maybe it's less time than that, and the story is just about how this American, you know, um, this this Indian American uh, goes back to the homeland, and there's that culture shock because he considers himself an American, and so he's being exposed to his culture as an outsider. Um, so it has that very personal story feeling to it, and obviously as an outsider, he there's that whole culture clash and the fish out of water thing, and I mean I think that the film. Uh, it is interesting. I, I mean, it's um, he's the he's the lead character, and to be fair, he's not bad. He's actually pretty good in the in the role. He he acts pretty well. Works with a and and the cast is made up of I'm guessing, uh, essentially amateur, um, you know, Indian actors or maybe maybe they're locals. I don't know. They're not great in any case, but they're okay. Uh, it's it's very clearly a student film. It has very much that feel to it. But he obviously got, uh, I think it had like an $800,000 budget or something like that. So they were able to put together something that's pretty nice. And in the, in the YouTube uh, quality, it doesn't look great, obviously. But you can tell that there's some interesting shot compositions and things that they were trying to do. Um, but yeah, it goes back to what I was saying. That it was, I was surprised by the fact that it was very much a personal film. Very like an indie, personal indie that is very much like what you said, Linklater or Tarantino or whatever else. It's a little bit naive. Um, he he goes into the whole mysticism thing that goes with the with the culture, I suppose. I don't know if those elements work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the whole thing about his father. He's going back to his father's homeland, and he had a he had a kind of conflictive relationship with his father, and um, so it there is a mystical element to it. Some when when he discovers he goes back to the the house where his father grew up, and it is implied that uh he sees his father's ghost huh um, which is a weird thing like because you're looking at this kind of naturalistic story you know about a guy 
it's it's a realistic thing and then all of a sudden you they throw in this sort of mystical element and you're like hmm that's that's weird okay so that you went there you went there didn't you okay um again i don't know that it works entirely but it's interesting that that's there you know um there's an element of romance he tries to have a he he uh he likes one of his classmates this uh this beautiful uh, young woman that's there but uh due to the culture he can't approach her he can't talk to her it, you know, it, it, it touches upon a lot of those themes. Um, so it is an interesting film to see, I think, and to see that he started out like any of those uh, of his contemporaries, just trying to make an indie, a personal indie film and uh, to try to get noticed. And it did get him noticed to the point that he was able to work with Miramax, which is where uh, Wide Awake comes in, um, which I think he was able to do a couple of years later. Yeah, I'm... Yeah, Praying with Anger does sound interesting just because of the personal element. I mean, I know he's an American-born Indian, and he didn't necessarily ever um, venture into the Hindu uh, sort of spirituality in any context. He was actually raised Catholic. That's right. And, you know, he... You know, his parents were doctors, but he really gravitated towards Spielberg and Twilight Zone, and you can see that throughout his entire career. Absolutely. And so it, it kind of, it's interesting to me that you bring up that he brings in sort of the fantastical, mythical ghost element, even in his debut film. Yeah. Um, but it, it's clear that, uh, like, just some of the the sort of Catholic um, touchstones are touched on throughout his filmography about you know just this the um crisis of faith mm-hmm. is something you'll find a lot and once we get to wide awake here it really is sort of spelled out what this what the what the whole intent of the of the main character is and that is to find god after exactly. going through tremendous loss um which is something that you know, even even recently, I saw this movie called Demolition with Jake Gyllenhaal, and I think any movie that tackles extreme loss or sudden trauma or just just trying to deal with the fact that somebody has left them, um, and you know what does that mean, is something that I will automatically uh, gravitate towards and find to be an interesting theme to tackle, mm-hmm. but. <sighs> this Wide Awake is a it, it it plays more like a movie that Fred Savage would have starred in, in the mid eighties or something. It's oh, yeah, oh, yeah. yeah. It, you know, it has like the you know the boy who could fly, or just it's got the fantastical. It tries to be more grounded, but it also has a really quirky and uh, constant voiceover. <laughs> Uh, well, yeah. I, I mean, uh, you might be over overstay. I don't know if it was that constant, but it does come in now and then. I mean, the 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 kid does narrate the movie, I think, doesn't he? Yeah, uh, the, yeah. Through, yeah. Throughout most of it, and but I mean, it, it really is like I did this thing, and then we get to see that thing, and that's always the kind of voiceover that irks me. I mean, I don't mind when you're trying to learn about the character's internal state or what they're thinking. But I think it's 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 a kind of voiceover that I just it, it called attention to itself constantly. Where it is like I did this thing now, watch me do this thing, or he just talks about the thing he just did. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. 
but it's a crutch and uh, but it's also a kids movie kind of <laughs> basically i mean it's obviously aimed at a it, it's 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 a movie it's put out by miramax but no, the it was obviously intended to be like a family film yeah you know, aimed at like a family audience sure uh, and it definitely has the schmaltziness of a of a family film, um, like you said, the Fred Savage thing from the '80s. That's spot on. It has. It also made me think. I never really watched uh, either of these shows, but it but it kind of made me think of like uh, Touched by an Angel or or uh, what, Seventh Heaven. Yeah. Uh, what like uh, so those shows that were very like or or you know. Another thing about Wide Awake, it could also have been—it could have been like a TV movie, you know, like a like a like mm-hmm. a Mike, like a Michael Landon produced TV movie from like 1987, um, or, or or something like that. I don't know. Yeah, it, it could have been on like the Disney Channel or the Family Channel or whatever. Yeah. But yeah, it it's very bland. Um, I don't think Dennis Leary knew what the heck he was doing. He's just kind of kind of just coasting. It's he's playing the antithesis of Dennis Leary. Of that in that time, um, well, there is one. I mean, it's weird. First of all, like I wonder how how he was cast in the film in the first place. Like yeah. it doesn't because uh, we should we should probably mention he plays uh, the the kid in the movie is uh, Joseph Cross, mm-hmm. who uh, who at the time was kind of showing he was popping up in a bunch of stuff. He, he uh, I, I guess they were sort of trying to groom him to be the, the big child star of the moment because he was in that he was in. He was in Desperate Measures with Michael Keaton and Andy Garcia, which came out around the same time. Oh, he yeah. was in, in Jack Frost with Michael Keaton. Um, he, he was just what he just. Uh, he, I mean, I think he's a good actor. He just uh, ended up in shitty movies, and it didn't really help his career very much. But well, um, he went on to have sex with Joseph Fiennes in Running with Scissors. That's what I remember him. The, oh, the yeah, oh, okay. See, I'm not even familiar with that, but that sounds. It's <laughs> like something to see, um, but. Uh, Dennis Leary plays Joseph Cross's father, and it's a very kind of un, like mute. It's not. It's sort of like why get Dennis Leary for that role when you're not going to have him be Dennis Leary? You mm-hmm. know, what I mean? sort of like like who thinks there was like oh I'm casting the movie. You know who'd be good in this part? This this sort of nothing part, very kind of uncharismatic, muted, just family man guy. Um, let's get Dennis Leary. I don't like I just I don't know where the thought process came for that, but okay. I mean. Um, it certainly is uh, Shyamalan directing Dennis Leary to an uncharacteristic performance as he would other actors later, so maybe there's some of that to it. Who knows? Yeah, I think his intentions were were noble, and, you know, it's a simple story, and pretty much anybody can watch it, and it's kind of innocuous and a, a little slight, but um, I just found it more cloying than cute. I, I found it mostly just kind of like, alright, well the themes are being spelled out to the point where I can kind of guess how this whole story is going to play out. and it's got, a, it's got a weird marketing campaign to where it seemed like Rosie O'Donnell was going to be like, you know, this angel or something, this guardian angel for, the, for, for Joseph Cross's character, and it's not that case at all. <laughs> well, that's kind of what I thought, you know, I, that's what I thought it would turn out to be. Yeah. <laughs> Like I was, oh, well, this is Shyamalan, so maybe this has a twist ending too, you know. And then so you're like, you're sitting there watching it because you know, yeah, they made a big deal out of um, uh, Rosie O'Donnell's participation in the film. Uh, she is a lot more Rosie O'Donnell than Dennis Leary is Dennis Leary, if that yes. makes sense. They, they obviously, 
cast her to be Rosie O'Donnell in the movie. I mean, basically the way that she would be in any of the movies. Um, but it was, it's just, it, it's a, it's weird because the movie, there, there are parts of it that I think are interesting. And again, it's like, it, it, it does have that sort of autobiographical aspect to it because like you said, he was, he was raised Catholic. Shyamalan was raised Catholic and he went to a Catholic school, which I believe is where they shot the movie. I think I'm pretty sure. I think, so. I th- yeah, I think I read that too. Yeah. Uh, so he was, I'm sure he was drawing from personal experience for a lot of what we see in that movie. I mean, he did write it. I mean, it comes and, um, but I guess, I mean, should we, should we go ahead and just spoil it for our listeners that he does find God at the end? Yeah, I should have, I should have stated this pretty much up front, um, in the discussion that, um, even even the visit, I th- I mean it's it's been out for a while. We're pretty much going to spoil every Shyamalan movie, so I'm I'm hoping yeah. people know that up front. Yep, I think I think we may as well just tell them every everything. Like yeah. we'll, we'll give away the ending to every single one of the movies. Um, but yeah, he does find God, and I think that it it's the way they try to build it up in the movie. I I think they tried to make that moment work, be a lot more emotional than it actually ends up coming off. It comes off as really kind of kind of silly um uh rather than it should be a moment of great revelation but it just comes off as silly uh so but it is interesting how he builds it you said twilight zone and yeah this could also have this could have been one of the lesser twilight zone episodes sort of thing you know uh where where this uh it could be the same story this kid trying to find god and in the end there's there's god right there right under his nose he never realized and there he was and you know, yeah, whatever. that kid in the background that we saw very briefly earlier. <laughs> a couple of scenes, you know, he, he sort yeah. of makes into him. Oh, he's he's very intelligent. He's quiet, and he keeps to himself. Who is this kid, or whatever, right? Um, but yeah, uh, the stories. He wants to find God because his grandfather dies, and he uh, his grandfather played by Robert Loggia, and uh, he. Uh, he be, it, it becomes his mission to sort of find God um, to because he wants to know if his grandfather's okay. That's basically what it is, right? Right. Right. So, and so throughout the whole movie, there's this kid that's always there in the background that he occasionally mentions. This like blonde kid, and um, and then the, movie, the movie's basically coming to an end. It basically follows uh, a, a year, a school year, right? So he's um, so they're doing the the big like end of the year photo, class photo, and then. Uh, goes like, oh well, well, there's this kid who has to come here. Where is he? And he goes out looking for him, and nobody else can see him. I think. I think that's what they imply that only he can see him. And then, you know, and he goes up to him. He goes like, uh, "Aren't you going to come to the picture?" He's like, "Oh, I'm not in your class." <laughs> By the way, your grandfather's doing just fine. And then, like, he leaves, to, and, the, and the music swells, and I'm just like, "Ah, oh, really? Okay, fine. That's that's fine." Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's yeah, it doesn't work. It doesn't I mean, work. it's certainly it doesn't irk me. It's not offensive in any way. I don't think it. I mean, it, it's pandering to somebody, you know, like me who's, you know, a, asked big existential questions. But I think at the same time, it's really by the numbers. Um, but I also at the same, but also I think that kids can watch it and you know they would enjoy it and maybe get something out of it i think joseph cross is very likable yeah you know it it's fine but it really it's it, it plays that sentimentality well like to, to to such a degree that it's hard not to roll your eyes at the end yeah 
Yeah, I mean, it's. I think. Well, the the one positive thing I'll say about it is that it is sort of. You know, you look at all these faith-based uh, films that come out, like God is Not Dead and et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, Miracles when, from Heaven. Yeah, yeah, and they tend to be, uh, especially, specifically like God is Not Dead or something, they tend to be s- such tracts, you know, and, and so obvious. And and at least I figure, okay, if you're going to make a faith-based film where you're trying to impart some kind of a message about God or whatever it is, you're better off doing something kind of like Wide Awake than which sort of plays like a like a regular movie than doing something so uh, so extreme like god is not dead or whatever else um at, at least it doesn't there's a certain sincerity to it i guess like i i think that Shyamalan uh believed in what he was doing and i mean cuz there's a, there's a there's a book called uh down and dirty pictures i don't know if you heard of it it's uh, oh yeah yeah i've been meaning to read that i keep hearing it's great no, it's it's pretty good. It's uh, Peter Biskin's um, sequel to Easy Rider's Raging Bulls. Right. In that book, he basically chronicles the indie, you know, the 90s, essentially, uh, the indie movement and Miramax and all of that. And so there's this this whole segment of it where they kind of go into this movie a little bit. And um, Did how, Weinstein mess with it at all? So, yes, he did. He apparently uh, he apparently cut it to shreds, as he, as he is wont to do with tons no of... No surprise. Um, and uh, I... I don't remember the exact details i do know that at the screening for it like at the at the you know at the miramax screening for it uh he made Shyamalan cry <laughs> uh, oh god but, yeah because he basically told him that it that, that it was a piece of shit movie and, and and just like you know so that that's why he had to like cut it and um <laughs> and it does make reference though to the to the fact that i mean the book at least paints Shyamalan as kind of very arrogant um i've how, heard that <laughs> yeah Ultimately, because like in that chapter, they basically say that at the time that all of this happened, he had already written The Sixth Sense and already was preparing a development deal with Disney to, to make it. So essentially, he was like, you know what? Fuck it. I don't, I don't care. You can do whatever you want to this movie because I've got The Sixth Sense and that movie's going to make like $250 million and I'm going to blast right past you assholes. So, um, so essentially, that's sort of what, what ended up happening. And then so the film was released, barely released, like in, in an edited version. That Shaman didn't really approve of, and so it was put out there. It, I don't think it got particularly great reviews, and it was forgotten. And then apparently, when when the Sixth Sense came out, and all of a sudden now Shyamalan was a toast of to the town, um, apparently Weinstein like approached him at a party or something and said, "You know, if you want, we could re-release uh, Wide Awake. Cut, you know, you could you could release your director's cut of it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, you like, put a, uh, we'll put all the stuff back, and we'll release it the way you want it if you want." And he refused to do that at that point. So, I don't know. Yeah, it it feels it it feels. I don't know. It's it's a strange um, entry into his filmography. I think just because it lacks that sense of um, patience when it comes to pacing, mm. and the score here is very sort of cutesy and Sesame Sesame Streety or something. <laughs> Yeah, no, it sounds it sounds like a sitcom score. Yeah, yeah. It's all very much the the uh, the like we were saying the the whole TV movie kind of it's just yeah yeah you, you're it's just bland. Right, and you know I, as much as I like Joseph Cross, I just you know a lot of the interactions and things he says it it feels very written. It doesn't feel as organic. Um, but you know if if you if you want to ask these questions. That's fine. Like there, there are people who find something like Waking Life to be annoying just because it comes right out and literally has characters look into the camera and ask the big questions. Yeah, 
but I, you know, I, I don't mind it when, you know, this is, this is the, the territory that a filmmaker is interested in exploring. Especially, I just think it's inter- interesting, you know, for someone of his heritage and upbringing to adopt a different faith than, you know, you would expect which is, yeah. you know, which also just plays into a lot of his a lot of his later films. Just his his style and confidence behind the camera wasn't as apparent and, you know, it wasn't as refined. And here we go with the film that tapped into the Zeitgeist in 1999. It explores, you know, the supernatural in a very humanistic way. You know, and that's the thing. Like you can look at this as a horror movie. You can look at th- look at this as a ghost story. But my favorite scene in the entire movie, and one of my favorite scenes in all of M. Night's films, is probably when Cole confesses to his mother in the car about what he's been seeing and his grandmother. Oh, yes. Yeah, that, that is a terrific scene. And it's it's the reason why I think the film holds up. Yeah. We'll, we'll, I mean, I um, because... We were. We said we would discuss it. Where you feel that maybe it doesn't necessarily uh, hold up. Certainly not the ending. What like once you know the yeah, ending. Yeah, the it, ending is really what I'm referring to. Like the, the, just the surprise element. Right. Yeah. Um, and I think, but I think that the reason the film does still work is because uh, he did. He was. He did the right thing. Shaman did the right thing in that story. I think, which is the key. I think to having a a twist movie where you where you have a a twist ending where you have to be very careful because you shouldn't make the entire movie about the twist. People right. uh, criticize that. People who, people who wanted to criticize the Sixth Sense uh, in, in bad reviews of the film uh, tended to say, yeah, it's a one-trick movie because once you know the ending, the movie doesn't really work. But I, I don't agree because I do think that he constructed a satisfying story and then sort of slapped on a twist at the end of it, um, which is the way to go about it. And that's sort of what happens here. It really is a story of Cole um, – coming to grips with his uh let's let's say his gift and uh and uh being able to open up to his mother i mean it's it's the theme of the movie is communication i think i mean it's a movie about cole wanting to be finally being able to communicate with his mother and it's also about Hmm. the the lack of communication between bruce willis and his wife you know, um, I think that that's really the theme of the movie, and and so because he's able to resolve those themes in a satisfying way, and you're 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 right that that scene at the end where he finally breaks down and and tells and confesses to his mother about his gift and proves it to her by basically uh, saying that he had that he's already spoken with uh, with his grandmother, um, and uh, so that that scene is very emotional. I think very effective. I mean, it it, it gives me a lump in my throat. Every time I watch it, yeah, that moment in particular really, you know, elevated the film a little higher. Just because there are certain things that I mean, I don't even find it as scary as I once did, and maybe it's just because of expectation. Like, oh, I know when Misha Barton's going to throw up, and uh, you know, some of the, some of the jump scares upon rewatches just don't really. Uh, affect me as opposed to something like well I mean this is a uh, you know a film that really raised the bar but something like The Exorcist where I can watch it and still be as creeped out or something like Rosemary's Baby um, but with Sixth Sense as a horror film it's a lot you know the, the the pacing is very languid and that's not necessarily a criticism it's just 
it's something that you can't deny with both. Um, well, I mean, the majority, I think, of his films. He he takes his time in telling a story. He does have a particular sense of pacing. Yes, he's, yeah. he's very. He, he paces the films very deliberately. Yeah, I mean, you see that. You see that in Wide Awake. You see that in Praying with Anger. And yeah, you definitely see it in The Sixth Sense. Um, I I agree with you. I think that the movie holds up as a dramatic film experience, but uh, in a, in repeat viewings. But I do think that it doesn't necessarily hold up as a horror film the second time you watch it. Well, for two reasons. One, you know the twist, right? But also, you know that the ghosts don't mean Cole any harm. Mm-hmm. So yeah. once you know that, then you know that he's never going to be in any danger, like nothing. So it's just maybe some, you have some like eerie imagery that might, you know, cause an impact. But it doesn't necessarily, it's scary when you first watch it because you don't know what's going on. And you don't know if, if I mean, maybe, maybe Cole's in danger, like in any uh, uh, supernatural story. But yeah, but once you know that no, that the ghosts are just asking him for help, then yeah, I mean that once that's diffused, then the film only works really as a drama, I think, as a, as like a dramatic, suspenseful dramatic film about a kid coming to grips with his gift and learning and figuring out how to communicate this to his mother. That's basically what what it works as. Yeah, I mean, there's there's certain elements you know that sort of defy kind of logic. Like, I mean, there's. I don't mind the Misha Barton subplot involving the videotape and everything. I think it's, I think it's questionable whether or not the you know the father would just suddenly in the middle of the wake decide to play a random videotape. Um, but like, that's the thing is if you, you can sort of nitpick moments like that even in, even in a film like this that pretty much holds up when it comes to. You know, the, just the Bruce Willis character and his role, and you know, trying to spot, like, does you know, does it really showcase him as a ghost throughout the entire film? Like, when I rewatch it this time, I just noticed that Shyamalan is actually really good with um, choosing when a scene should begin and when a scene should end, mm-hmm. uh, especially here with like a moment where, um, uh. I think his name is Malcolm, right? Bruce Willis's character. Yes. Uh, he is yeah. sitting, you know, waiting for Cole to show up. Um, you know, and his mom is sitting across in a chair. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, the first time you see that, you just automatically think, like, well, you know, the, the mom has hired Bruce Willis and, as a therapist to come and help. And, yeah. And this time I'm like, huh. That's an interesting choice to just start the scene right there with him just sitting across from her, and she's kind of indifferent. Like you're you're watching it differently, knowing um, what Bruce Willis is, and I think that's I think it's an interesting experience. Like even if you don't actively love the film, just to go back and notice touches like that, and just to show, showcase like, well, M Night Shyamalan he does know filmmaking. Um, especially early on and just he has a good sense of it a good sense of control and confidence and uh, a, a good sense of storytelling i think exactly it's visual storytelling right yeah he allows you to just interpret what you're seeing but he, he gives you the cues you know like like you just said he's got bruce willis sitting there and the mother the tony collette sitting across from him and you just obviously interpret that scene a certain way because she gets up and walks over to cole and tell i don't remember exactly what she says to him something like uh and if you're, and if you do this, you you will. I don't remember. She she basically implies what she says 
implies that uh, she's referring to like the session with Bruce Willis, you know, like the, the his his mm-hmm. therapy. But she's referring to something else. But the way that that scene is built, right? You have the it, it, the implication is that this is uh, Willis's new patient and that she has hired him because he, we know he's a child psychologist. And so, and and we don't. So it, the movie doesn't cheat. I mean, uh, Shyamalan is very, very clever about the way he sets up the twist. That he he's very he uh, he's sincere about it. He he never cheats. Like you you really do never see Will, uh, Bruce Willis interact with anyone in the film besides Cole. And the thing about it is, you don't really notice that when you when you're first watching the movie. I don't believe people. Like I mean, I suppose there are some people who could see the twist coming, but I don't really believe people. When they tell me that the first time they saw it, they knew that the, I just don't believe them. I think they're I think they're full of shit because there's the, it's not set up that way. You're not supposed to know, you know. And the, it's so cleverly built where when you don't see him interact with anybody, it's not something that you're really realizing that you're really paying attention to. I think he he does it because of when whenever he includes Bruce Willis, there's always somebody else there. So there's that whole thing with the wife, and you you know there's a scene at, when he shows up at the at the restaurant. Yeah. And he's saying like, "Oh, I'm sorry. I thought you meant the other restaurant where you where I proposed to you. I think it was right." Um, and and she doesn't say anything back to him. So you obviously it, it, you interpret that as, "Oh, okay, she's pissed because um, he forgot their anniversary date or whatever it is." And so there he is. You just interpret it that way, and, th- and then you think she's having an affair with like her coworker. Like it's it's just built very interestingly in that way. Yeah, I agree. I mean. There's there's the sort of rule of well the ghost only sees what they want to see, mm-hmm. you know that and maybe that's questionable to some degree with why would why would Bruce Willis, you know why, why I always do that with character names and actor names but why would Malcolm uh, suddenly decide that he wants to see, you know his wife having an affair. I, I mean, can you interpret that as like maybe he wants to see her move on to some degree or I mean it's just like the fact that that rule is sort of set in a place that a ghost only sees what they want to see and then he sees something like that just to get really angry and yeah. throw like a rock at the glass no I think what happens if I recall he uh, Cole basically tells him he says that they see what they want to see but he also says something key he says they don't know they're dead yeah so uh, I think the implication there is that Bruce Willis, throughout this entire film, uh, doesn't realize that he's, he's in dead. denial. To right, some exactly. He, he has he, exactly. He's not. He hasn't come to face the fact that he's a, that he's dead. So um, he's just he's in denial. And um, I, I mean, you have to sort of read into it a little bit. Like you're wondering, okay, so then what happens in the scenes that we don't see? Like what happens when he goes home and like tries to get into bed with her and nothing happens? What 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 happened? <laughs> You know, like you're thinking, how does his life really unfold? You're right. If you if you start to analyze that aspect of it, then yeah, I guess it is kind of a plot hole that um, he'd had to have realized at some point. Hang on a second, what is this? You know, because there had I'm sure there were other moments in which he tried to interact with his wife, and you know, she wasn't responding to him. So um that is true i mean uh, i i hadn't until you brought it up i hadn't really thought of that being a bit of a plot hole but i guess it is yeah i mean that's the thing is that i know detractors especially will want to hone in on those plot holes Mm -hmm. and i'm sort of in the middle to where i'm like i kind of want to do that but 
I always approach film as this, is this an emotionally satisfying experience for me personally? What do I get out of it? Is it a well-told story too on top of it? I mean, I will say that the relationship relationship between Cole and his mom is really still to this day very effective and you know, I, I, I respond to that and I, I think Haley Joel Osment is incredible in this film, without a doubt. And I even like the scenes with him and Bruce Willis, you know, I yeah. whether they're in the church or that magic trick kind of a moment. Um I think Bruce Willis is very good in this movie he, too. Good. He is like I, I I think it's one of his best performances. Um I I, I really do. I think uh Bruce Willis uh, tends to be, in my opinion, better when he's muted. Yeah. That's, That's definitely the case, too, for the next film. Yeah. But uh, there was one last thing before we move on. I'm curious, because you mentioned at the top that uh, the stuttering Stanley scene really bothers you. And I just <laughs> wonder if you sort of shed light on that. I just... Uh, uh, I don't know. I just find it kind of over the top. In that mm-hmm. moment where the score is starting to raise and he's covering his eyes and you know the teacher is just telling him to shut up, you freak. I just yeah, and he kind of, like he pounds on the desk and goes like, "Shut up, you f- 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 freak!" <laughs> <laughs> and the thing is, like that shot of him pounding his fist on the desk is like a, is is one of those great buttons for a trailer. Mm-hmm. Like, and they used it in the trailer, like you know, it was like when you saw like the the gruesome stuff happening. There was that shot of him pounding. So you know, when you're watching the trailer, you assume that maybe that's one of the ghosts or something. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, but I guess, I guess it is an over. It is a bit of an over the top scene. Um, in a movie you, that's not, it doesn't. It, this isn't a happening. This, there, there's not over the yeah. top silly scenes. So it's hard not to, you know, point that out as a kind of a. As a a standout moment that just doesn't work overall. I mean, I understand why it's in the film. It just doesn't work for me personally. Right. You feel that. I mean, I think the, the implication he's trying to, it, it just shows you that like ghosts have been talking to him and they told him about stuttering Stanley. Yeah. Essentially. So, so it's just for us to give a little bit more insight into Cole's gift or power or whatever it is. Um, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess you're right. Uh, I think, yeah. Um, those those two things. Talking to you about it has been a little bit of an eye opener because I had not thought about that plot hole until you started to bring that up. So, yeah, uh, it, it's unfortunate because you know I start to read things or I listen to a couple other shows and it, it's it's like things that maybe I would have put on the back burner, things that I never would have considered, and then I think about them like you know what, yeah, maybe this maybe this has gone down just a little bit. Um, despite the fact that um, it still it still works, like you said, as a good um, you know psychological drama of sorts, where it's about characters you know trying to come to terms with something, yeah, come to terms with themselves, come to terms with loss, come to terms with um, you know just the fact that they have a certain role that they have to learn to appreciate within themselves like even even the mom has to something to accept about her son the son has to accept his gift and of course at the very end uh malcolm has to accept the fact that he's dead and has to move on and he has to let his wife go so she can actually have a fulfilling life on her own yeah so i mean on that level 
it's still a good film. It's just, it's not the mind-blowing, you know, close to masterpiece I initially thought of when I first saw it. And maybe it is just because with age and in um, in hindsight, or ju- I mean, just with with the f- looking at his career as a whole, it's not something that I necessarily plan to rewatch regularly. Whereas his next film, that one's gone up for me. It yeah. really has. Yeah, uh, Unbreakable is definitely a keeper. Um, I totally yeah. agree. Uh, at, at the time, you know, uh, it's it's the sort of movie that you I think you need to see twice. Um, to really to really appreciate because I mean sure like uh, Sixth Sense it maybe has a twist that once you know the twist that's a, that's gone but I think it's a movie that actually improves once you know the twist because you that's a good you, point. you start to see it in a different way you start to look at it from a different perspective so um, uh, yeah I, I I definitely agree with you there I, I think Unbreakable is a is a superior film to the Sixth Sense um, it wasn't as well received at the time but I, I do think it has grown in estimation over the years. Yeah, even even when I first saw it, my eyes did roll at the end. Not convinced it was the best way to end the film, or even have the you know the title cards explaining. Well, then this happened, and then that happened. Yeah, that 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 I still think is clunky. And I, yeah. I, got, I heard that originally that wasn't there. Um, hmm. I think it, originally it just ended like it just faded faded to black or whatever. And I think maybe there might have been studio insistence or something where they said, well, we. We shouldn't just leave it there. Maybe it would be good to put something there to explain, and, and and so he was sort of talked into doing that. But I think originally that wasn't the case. So in that, if it's studio interference, then they kind of fucked it up because I like that it is a lot. It's a lot more effective if you, they don't have to spell it out for you. You know, like because that doesn't matter. That's not the point anymore. Yeah, exactly. I think as a film, you know, despite again, you know, being leisurely paced, it's about the nature of identity. Um, and sometimes, you know, we identify ourselves through archetypes and, uh, you know, I'm not the biggest comic book nerd or, you know, even a big fan of all the, the resurgence lately. I I mean, I definitely think there have been hits, but for the most part, I just don't get as, as overly enthused about comic book movies, but I don't even think that's, that's again, that's just something, um, a motif, just something that's there. It's not necessarily... I mean, I know a lot of people sort of hone in again to and just say this is a comic book origin story through and through. Yeah. And it, I mean, yeah, it's it, that's a part of it, but I also think there's a strong father-son relationship that hooked me in. You know, any film that sort of explores this idea of a parent's true nature being brought to the surface right in front of a child's eyes, mm-hmm. that automatically connects with me on a personal level because that's happened um but you know i i think that you know probably my my number one disconnect with Shyamalan's work is i don't always feel emotionally attached to the stories they they can feel like extended twilight zone episodes but here it's it's really um a special character study that um you know i think it's 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 true for any person that we all sort of yearn for someone who will help us see how special we really are. Yeah. And I think that that emotional payoff, and especially like just a very subtle scene, like, I mean, I've often said that he he is hammy and over the top and 
has these grandiose moments of spelling it all out to the audience. I really like a simple, quiet moment of just uh, Bruce Willis, you know, pushing the newspaper to his son for him to read. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep. And uh, and the look on this kid's face when he yeah. reads it. Cause I, because he's, he's sort of, it's like this little secret that he has with his son now, you know? Um, and, um, cause like, yeah, that, that scene is so wonderfully played by, by the two of them, the, mm-hmm. he, the way he sort of like pushes it over and then, uh, he looks down and then looks up and his eyes go like saucers. And then like, uh, I think Bruce Willis kind of brings his, his finger to his lips, sort of like, sh- like, don't say anything to your mom or whatever. And, um, and just like, so they're having, they're having this little secret moment between them. And yeah, that's a very moving moment in that film. Yeah. Um, but again, there is still... <laughs> I can't help but point out maybe the the, the scene in the uh, in the um, comic book store with Samuel L. Jackson just sort of lashing out at the clerk. Right. I know that I know that's sort of emphasizing his role as you know eventual villain, but it I don't know. It's probably the it's probably the one scene in the movie that just doesn't work for me. Again, almost like the stuttering Stanley scene. Right, it, it, it's the it's the over, it's the stuttering Stanley uh, of the Unbreakable. Uh, yeah, um, yeah. It's a weird scene. It is I, because I don't I don't really think that the stu- like I don't even understand why he does that. Like I, I, I don't. Right. It's not something that makes sense at the time that you're watching the film, and then even by the time it gets to the end, I don't think it's something where you go, "Oh, that's why he did that." It just he sort of just. I guess it's his way because he thinks that he's failed. I guess because hmm. uh, I think it happens right after Bruce Willis tells him that he ha- that he has been sick or something like that, right? That, that yeah. he he was in the hospital, and so he f- and at that point uh, Samuel Jackson basically feels that he was wrong, and I guess he's pissed off, and that's why he does it. But it's a but it's just it is a very strange scene, and it's very awkward. Um, the uh, the comic book guy's uh, dialogue is also really sort of weird. So I'm like, ah, I hope you're not jerking off to the Japanese comics or something. I think, <laughs> uh, and and then it's it's just weird. Like I don't, it, it is a kind of a weird scene. Um, but Unbreakable is a, is a very unique film. The, uh, here's a question I have: When you first went to see it, like, did you see it when it came out in theaters? Or yeah, did sure did. Okay, and did you know that it had anything to do with comic books when you saw it? When you went to before? Um, no, I don't think so. No, I, I just knew that uh, you know from the trailers, which were very good, um, that he had some sort of he had gained some sort of power after a near death experience, and that's also another sort of uh, hook, line, and sinker plot line for for yours truly because. I, you know, I, I had weird health issues and had a near-death experience of sorts, so anytime that comes into play in a film, I'm in. And I, I know the first time I just didn't feel as strongly about the movie as I do now, but yeah, I didn't know, no, I had no idea about the comic book element. Yeah, no, neither did I, and I remember, like, sitting there watching the movie that starts, and it starts with all these, like, statistics, you know, like, there are, I don't know, it just goes over these, like, statistics about comic books and readers and sales. Yeah, it's whatever. like something Spike Lee would do. Right, and then I was like, "What the fuck am I watching?" And then, and then like, you know, because it was weird. I was like, "What? What? What is this?" And so I thought that, um, I mean, when I first saw it, I thought it was very interesting the, the way it sort of brought you into that world. Um, and then you realize about halfway, th- you start to realize, okay, so this is I'm watching a comic book movie. Then I'm, I'm watching a naturalistic comic book movie, um, and 
uh, it was ahead of the curve on things that eventually became very like an approach. I think it's a film that it, it wasn't as commercially successful as The Sixth Sense. Um, and I think that had it been released in a climate where uh, that that it sort of wrought, you know, with, with all the comic book films that came afterwards. Yeah, like then, Christopher Nolan's, you know, take on the comic book. Yeah, uh, the realistic, uh, you know, the take, the realistic take on superhero films. Like, sure. Like uh, Men Begins. I mean, look, I, I'm going to say it, I'm pretty sure that Unbreakable might have had an influence in that. I don't know. Like, I don't know. I I wouldn't say for certain that it was like the and the only influence, but I certainly think that people looked at that and went, "Hmm, this is an interesting approach to a comic book film," uh, which has been done in comic book form, like with Watchmen and things like that. But um, it's never been done in comic book films. But why don't we try to take a more realistic approach to comic book films? And so you started to see a more naturalistic approach to the films that came later, like uh, even, well, I don't know if um, maybe X Men might have come after that. I'm not. I, I could be wrong about that. Uh, I, I know that Spider Man definitely did come after that, and um, and and all the ones that sort of followed, and then TV shows like Heroes that tried to have like a quote unquote realistic approach to a comic book mythos. Yeah, for sure. I, th- I think that he sort of let like it was a little bit ahead of the curve, and that's why people didn't really get it when it first came out and i think because since then there have been films like it uh now people accept it you know people go like oh this is interesting and he was sort of the first guy to do that in a in a commercial hollywood film yeah um, you know first seeing it i really wanted more of uh you know bruce willis's character just to utilize his powers and his gift and do crazy things and i wanted it to be a little bit more showy mm-hmm and so less subdued. You were disappointed the first time you watched it because you felt that it didn't really go it didn't go far enough with its concept. Yeah. Yeah, more or less. I mean, I remember being and I still am really taken by the, just the, the choice of the opening scene. And I know we haven't really touched upon, you know, just Shyamalan's you know, the way he uses uh the camera is is sometimes very interesting. Yes. And even in a scene like uh, well, there's he, he's really good with dinner scenes or just a, a, a two shot of somebody sitting at a table, and he'll he'll just he'll move the camera and change perspectives, or you know it'll be it'll be one long take, but he'll veer from person to person at very interesting times. And here, you know, and I remember even the first time I saw it, I was really like. That's a really interesting way to open a film on that train with that conversation with that woman. Yes, yes. Um, I really love that, and I love the way it's filmed. Yeah, I think um, that, that yeah, it's, it's definitely worth mentioning, at least beginning with The Sixth Sense. Um, part of, the, part of uh, Shyamalan's strengths is that he was able to really... I mean, I guess he was able to work with really good people. Oh, yeah, great cinematographers. Yeah, I mean, Sixth Sense is also a wonderfully shot film. It's, it's Tak Fujimoto, you know, yeah. uh, done, who done Philadelphia. And, and so, it, like, it's just so... And uh, Sounds of the Lambs. And so, like, he, it, it's so well shot. And I think for uh, Unbreakable, I think, is it Rodrigo Prieto the, he, who shot... That sounds uh, familiar. It, it, it might be him. I, I'm not going to be, like... I'll, I'll be looking it up while we're talking, but... um. But uh, but in any case, 
Yeah, the cinematography is so nicely done. In in Unbreakable, he uses the widescreen format. It's a it's a, it's a panoramic frame, and the that that train scene, it's it's just the way the camera goes from one side to another when he's uh, sitting there, and it it sort of increases the tension of a scene because it's an uncomfortable scene. It's a scene where this guy basically he tries to pick up the woman. Yeah. Right. And then uh, the embarrassment at when he when he gets sort of turned down and he doesn't you know the, the way he reacts the way like when she comes to sit down he hides his wedding ring his wedding band mm-hmm. then you know wh- they start to talk and then he says uh, so are you gonna are you gonna be staying in New York or whatever I think was he going to Philadelphia or was he going to New York I don't remember exactly what it was well if it's like, an M Night Shyamalan movie somebody's going to Philadelphia <laughs> and then like I'm married and like the, the awkwardness of it and I think I think p- part of the, the reason why um, that film that that scene is so tense and uncomfortable is because of that framing that you're talking about yeah I I think he's really good at that and you know watching watching Unbreakable I just became sort of aware like as much as I want to dismiss a lot of his films there are certain cinematic flourishes there are certain choices made uh you know whether if it's his I mean his collaboration with great cinematographers I just became aware like wow that's a really good like even with just Bruce Willis sitting um in the hospital and that it just sort of slowly pushes in on him from a distance yeah, that's a really great shot when he's talking to the doctor, and it's just there's stuff going on in the background. Sometimes in the well, obviously he's more in the background, but yeah. it's just a really good, interesting choice that sort of makes you aware. Okay, yeah, yes, I'm watching a movie, but these camera positions are deliberate. He's not necessarily just pointing and shooting. He's really paying attention in a Kubrickian kind of sense with framing and where to put where to put the camera, essentially. Yeah, well, in the scene that you're talking about, that what's great about that is that right, uh, Bruce Willis is sitting in the basically in the background, and the camera sort of zooming in on him uh, ever so slightly. But in the foreground, what we're seeing is like the top of a of a, I guess gurney or something. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's somebody that they're trying to resuscitate or something's going on there. But you slowly start to see like this pool of blood forming. Right, that's right. Yeah, as that person dies, because because uh, you start to hear the um, what is it, the EKG or whatever is it, the thing going going down you know the the yeah the heart monitor heart monitor thing and and as the pool of blood forms and i think that is a beautifully composed uh, shot right there and that's the thing i mean uh, uh, unbreakable is a very interestingly designed film um he they, they really did he was making a comic book and i think he made some very conscious choices uh, together with the cinematographer of framing the film so that there would be like comic book panels essentially so you'd be looking at these tableaus that were very specifically framed. So it was almost like each scene could be a series of comic book panels. I think that was the intention. Hmm. And it, it's something that doesn't really show up in any of his subsequent films, but it is a very um, stylized film. Yeah, it's uh, very deliberate. I mean, it. Uh, yeah, it, it. It sort of echoes just like whether. I'm trying to think of like a like a, a movie like It Follows. I just remember being really taken with certain choices of where to put the camera and just the cinematography. Mm-hmm. And uh, you know, here it's you know there's there's just certain sections where you know, especially when he's <laughs> standing with the poncho in the rain, yeah, where you just kind of go, "Damn, that's 
that's a really gorgeous shot. I mean, I will say that that there's a moment there because one thing I'm surprised I haven't brought up yet is uh, he also works with. Um, I'm pretty sure it's James Newton Howard through most of uh, most of his films, if not all of them, right? Well, starting with The Sixth Sense, I yeah. think from The Sixth Sense up till now, um, James Newton Howard has been the composer of, of his films. Fantastic scores. Absolutely fantastic scores. We'll, we'll probably touch upon it, uh, especially, uh, and I'm going to want to talk about it with The Village specifically. But, um, but yes, I, there is one thing that I think is, is key in, in filmmaker uh, partnerships that we see, and it's always when you see that they're able to bring the best out of each other, mm-hmm. sort of. I mean, certainly you look at a situation with like uh, Spielberg and John Williams, uh, where it was very their relationship is so legendary that that you know John Williams, those scores are so iconic, um, and I do, I do think that in James Newton Howard's case, I I'm saying like his best work as composer has been Shyamalan's films, in my opinion. Yeah, that if I I you know I'd look at his filmography, but I wouldn't argue that at all. Um, I think there's, uh, I was trying to get to this, but it was just something that, uh, kind of digressed a little bit, but I, um, that moment where he's standing with the poncho in the rain though, is the one score moment in the entire film that I am not a fan of because it comes across as very matrix late nineties with the, the, just like the, the techno kind of electro drum beat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, are you sure that that is is it when he's standing in the rain or when he's in the train station? Oh, maybe it's in the well. Yeah, I think it's in the train station when he's starting to look for yeah for, for someone, right? I think that's the thing where, where he's like going to use his powers out in the open, right? Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it. And um, and yeah, I, it's a little it's a little bit eh, you know. But I think um, like you said, maybe he was just it was just speaking to well. This is I'm going to try to get a little bit of a modern flourish, maybe. Mm-hmm thinking of something like the matrix when when he went to do that score because of the way the scene is laid out and he was like well you know he's touching people and you know seeing visions or whatever yeah yeah it has more of a rhythm to it a minority report kind of a thing but um yeah it's i mean that's just like that's again that's nitpicking but it's still something i was like "Uh, okay took me out a little bit but i'm still invested in the character and in the action pretty much throughout the the whole movie i mean it's Unlike you know some of the, the 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 you know sort of jump scares or the more horrific moments of the sixth sense, the uh, suspenseful scene involving the son picking up the gun still works for me here. Yeah, that's a tremendous scene. Which uh, I mean, I'm thinking you look at a, a thing like that and you go like, wow, this movie got away with a PG-13 rating uh, at a time when yeah. The- when people were cracking down on films for, for things that are much less intense, but that's a very intense scene, a very intense, dramatic scene. Um, and again, like it, it, it evidences Shyamalan's skill at working like, because over the years people start to pile on him and, and, um, you know, say, criticize him, but you got, oh, we'll you, get there like this. Yeah. Oh yeah. But you look at stuff, you look at unbreakable, you look at the sixth sense, the guy is a great actor's director, like just absolutely, because the the performances that he that he brings out, like in that particular scene, him, uh, Bruce Willis, and the kid, and I think uh, Robin Wright Penn's in the mm-hmm. scene, is, like the that scene is so tense, so well acted, and so credible. 
um, that uh, it's 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 an intense intense scene. I mean, you're on the edge of your seat. You was like, is he going to shoot? Is he is this kid going to actually do that? You know, and so it it is a pretty riveting thing. And it comes down to performance. Yeah, I I know that um, you know this will probably come up again in subsequent films, but um, also in something like The Sixth Sense, just the choice of uh, of the color red as being uh, you know something to signify that if there's a ghost near. Um, it, it was an interest. It was interesting to read that for some reason Samuel Jackson uh, actively sought out the color purple for his character. As, I didn't as a con- not necessarily as a contrast, but just as a defining characteristic for his for his um, character. Well, that that is interesting, and we I, we know uh, that Sam Jackson is a huge comic book fan. Yeah, so, oh, definitely. Uh, so what what I what I know he's like he obviously this film obviously appealed to him for that reason um, because it it was an interesting take on something that he was very into, and I mean we we haven't talked about it, but I do think also maybe that that comic book store scene aside, um, this is one of Samuel Jackson's really good performances. Yeah, no, I think he's good. I think he. I mean, I think his work with Tarantino still stands out above the rest. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, I, uh, I I'd forgotten, you know, just uh, just how how effective he is when he's not being Samuel L. Jackson. Right, right. So that he doesn't really get an opportunity. I mean, with Tarantino, obviously works with him very well. Sure. But I do, after he because when he had his sort of breakout role in Pulp Fiction. And then if you look at the stuff, because Samuel Jackson's a character actor that, that I think um, maybe you'll agree, but I was paying attention to him before Pulp Fiction. You know, I mean, I, I'd seen him in Jungle Fever, I'd seen him in a color, and I was like, this guy's a really interesting actor. I just always thought that. Um, so when he had his big breakout uh, role in Pulp Fiction, I was like, wow, okay, finally, he, he finally made it. But I think what happened is that what tends to happen to some, to some people is that once they break out with a certain persona... And then that's sort of all that anyone wants from them. So, like, they start showing up in all these other movies, basically just playing that same or variations of that same persona. And that's essentially what what Samuel Jackson was doing for a while after Pulp Fiction. He was basically just being Sam Jackson, as you said, right? Yeah. Uh, and then, so in Unbreakable, the interesting thing is that you see him playing a character again. You know, you see him playing just like a, an, a kind of weird character um, that is not at all the Sam Jackson uh, that we're used to seeing. And it's a fully formed, very interesting and unusual character uh, that, well, here's, here's my theory. Because, like, uh, one thing that I think distinguishes Shyamalan and why I think it's worthy to talk about him as a, as a filmmaker at the Director's Club like anyone else is because he, he does have a personal voice and a personal vision that he puts into his films. They're, they're absolutely the work of this guy. Uh, you look at Shyamalan's uh, filmography by and large, and you you can start to identify themes that his films have in common, and as you pointed out, the whole thing with identity. But I do think he has a personal touch in pretty much all the films he he makes. And in here, I think what I believe is that uh, Elijah Price, the the character that uh, Sam Jackson plays, I believe he's actually Shyamalan's alter ego. Hmm. Uh, I have that feeling because uh, you have all those flashback scenes. Um, sure. You know, I just sort of a, a sort of sheltered young boy um, escaping into the fantasy of comic books. Um, 
and I, I kind of get a feeling that there's a little bit of Shyamalan in, in that little boy. I, I do think that. I mean, uh, there's, there's obviously some of Shyamalan in, in, in uh, the Bruce Willis character. Um, what, what, I'm trying to remember what his name is. Yeah, I can't remember it either. No, I, know, I was going to say Dennis Dunn, but it's not Dennis Dunn. That's, uh, that's the actor. Yeah, I know it's Dunn, I think. David Dunn. David yeah. Dunn. Yeah, so th- there's probably a little bit of that too, because I'm sure that by the time that uh, Shyamalan wrote this screenplay, he was probably you know recently married with kids, uh, going through a kind of maybe a sort of a midlife crisis, the way that Bruce Willis is going through, and the, the whole. I'm sure he could identify that as as you know entering his own middle age or his late 30s or whatever it was. Hmm. Uh, so there, I'm sure there's some of that in Bruce Willis, but I but I do I do think that. Um, the character that's closest to uh, Shyamalan, I think, is Elijah Price. For some reason, it, ju- it just strikes me as that. The fact, the the, the escaping to fantasy, uh, the shy child, um, everything I, I read of, of uh, Shyamalan's, you know, history, that uh, seems to point to him kind of being that to some degree as, as a young boy. So, yeah, I also did happen to read that M Night Shyamalan went berserk in a video store once. Oh really? Just knocking down videotapes and going crazy and making the the clerk very angry. So that might explain. And did, what, did he ask him if he was maybe jerking off in the uh, <laughs> in the hentai section in the back? Of the... <laughs> 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 that's like I, I'm just wondering. Like that's I didn't know that. That's interesting. Is this is that true? No, that's not true. I was making a terrible joke. Oh, oh okay. All right. Well, but uh, but I could I could see <laughs> Shyamalan doing that um, now that um, you know as, as his ego grew. Um, no, but um, but yeah, it's it's that that's my theory. I think that Elijah Price is the Shyamalan alter ego in a, in a certain way, and also if you consider that the the way the story's laid out, Elijah Price creates uh, uh the the Bruce Willis character. To some yeah, degree. the mythology within. Right. Yeah, that's interesting. He, he's the creator. He's actually the creator. Um, so, well, you can make an interesting argument for this being sort of a a meta commentary on. On Shyamalan himself and his filmmaking process is almost like how people do with uh, Christopher Nolan and Inception. That'd be interesting to try yeah. and look at it that way. I think there's there's certainly somebody, somebody could look at that and and maybe start to see to try to bring that out. But the thing about um, Unbreakable, right? So it's these two characters that are um, placed into they're comic book characters or mm-hmm. comic book types that are placed into a very realistic naturalistic setting um and that i think that that's a very interesting thing goes back to what i was saying about the whole stylization of it like you said uh samuel jackson uh, actively seeking out the color purple and then you look at like the the fact that the way that the character's dressed you know with his like long coat and his cane and you know it's it's all very stylized they are ultimately playing comic book characters and they look like comic book characters but grounded in reality but grounded and it's in, so yeah. so let me so so if if Samuel Jackson is Mr. Glass that's who he is that's the <laughs> villain right like uh, so so what does that make uh what does that make Bruce Willis so what 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 superhero is he um is he like security man or something like I guess <laughs> so I I like that touch. I love the idea of that being his uniform, or I mean his uh, his outfit, his superhero cape of sorts. Right, security man. Yeah, kind of. Uh, there you go. Um, yeah, protector. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, uh, unbreakable. I think we can both agree that that's a that is definitely a high point in Shyamalan's career. 
Yeah, definitely. And I'm I'm glad I'm glad I rewatched it with an open mind and I'm not like out to chastise him just because I'm not a huge fan in general. I really watched it with an open mind trying to think like, okay, I know that this is one of his more acclaimed films, at least from my circles mm-hmm. of, of friends and film critics and whatnot, but uh, it didn't grab me the first time, and I'm so glad that it has now. It's probably one of the few that I'd be like, I would just pop on just to you know revisit and get more out of. So, um, yeah. it, it's a good experience rewatching a movie and kind of getting more out of it. Um, one last scene I want to highlight because it just popped into my head. How great is that scene? Where uh, it's uh, Samuel Jackson's trying to catch up with uh, the guy that supposedly had a gun on him, and he's like chasing him down the stairs in the oh, subway. Yeah. That scene, and then when he trips and falls, <sighs> and, and just the way that all the sound goes out of the scene, and uh, Samuel Jackson's just like bouncing down the stairs, and you just hear like the crunching of his bones. Right. And then he lands at the bottom, broken, right? And look, you know, screams in pain, but then looks up and sees the gun, and on his face we just see that that moment of realization. Um, <laughs> he like realizes that that uh, that Dennis, uh, that David Dunn was right, and he basically realizes that he's right, that that he's that he's found his superhero. Killer scene, although it does something that I think has happened on on a few occasions with M Night that I don't like. Mm-hmm. Uh, if I recall, when he's tumbling down the stairs, it does sort of go into slow mo uh, style. I I I'm not 100 percent sure, even though I just rewatched it. Yeah. I th- I think I could be remembering that correctly, and you know, certainly in there's a, a moment in Signs, there's a moment in the Village, yeah. where where it's just like, okay, we're just going to use slow mo right now, and it. Ugh, well, it's for. I think there's like a slow mo shot of of his cane. Yeah. Like a, him, him flopping down the stairs is intercut with his cane falling through the air and then shattering on like the ground. Right, right, right. Okay. And and then he shatters as well, right? So yeah, I mean, I guess it's maybe a little on the nose, but like like we were saying, it's a stylized movie, and that was obviously he was trying. It's a yeah, little. On the- it's not as out of place. So does he, and you know, like he shatters, and so does the cane. Yeah, but it's. I, I think that the scene is very suspenseful, and it mm-hmm. has this sort of impact that when he's falling down the stairs and you hear his bones crunching, you're just like, ah! You know, (laughs) like, it's that you sort of feel the pain of that moment, I think. to get mad at me uh for signs <laughs> well okay let's just I, i'm gonna say this i probably have said this before on the podcast or at least I've, i know i've told friends this um signs seeing signs in the theater was the first time i felt like an asshole <laughs> um, okay well I, I want to hear about this because normally if i dislike a movie or I have some issue with it. I'm, I'm pretty internalized with my response. I, I won't outright, you know, react mm-hmm. in any sort of negative way in the moment. But um, the the ending of Signs, clearly everybody else in the theater was 100% on board, invested, freaked out, and um, 
the moment I heard Swing Away, I started laughing. And <laughs> I felt I felt bad. Like I at first I felt bad that I just couldn't contain myself because usually I can, but I just found that to be the most absurd ending. Um, Just like, okay, my, my son is potentially going to die right now from an alien attacking him. For some reason, I'm just going to think I'm going to flashback in my head for a second to the moment where my wife was dying and what were her final words? And like, I just, oh my god, it's, it's like I have a visceral reaction to the ending of this movie, despite again liking so much about it. I really do. Um, but the, I know it's an easy target. I know a lot of people have, you know, probably have expressed similar um, disdain. But I, I, I just, I can't get past. Um, the ridiculousness of the ending, even though I know thematically the, the movie is about, uh, again, it's a character study about about a man rediscovering his faith. Exactly. Yes. Um, that's a key thing uh, that the, the film... Well, here's a suggestion. Why don't we go step-by-step step with this one? <laughs> why don't we, why don't we kind of go step-by-step step with this one? Um, sure. Like, m- much like you... First time I saw it, okay, I wasn't 100% sold on the ending. I didn't behave like an asshole at the theater, um, but, uh, but, you know, I wasn't like, wow, what a great ending to this picture. You know, I, I, I did kind of walk out going like, eh, I don't know if I'm 100% satisfied with what I just watched. Um, but, uh, but, you know, the marketing building up to the movie certainly intrigued me. I mean, I, I remember that that was one movie I couldn't wait to see. I don't, I don't know how you felt about it. Uh, no, I... I love alien invasion movies. I love, I mean, I, even as a young kid, I was really intrigued by Whitley Stryber's book Communion. Yes, uh, you know, like Wh- that. That cover alone was very striking for me, and just like thinking that was what probably an alien would look like. So I was always on board for this kind of story. Right, and because of all the Spielberg comparisons that were mm-hmm. thrown on. Milan at the time, obviously, I think a lot of people were expecting that this this was going to be Close Encounters of the Third Kind or something. Um, and I do remember, like, in all the press leading up to it, he did very clearly say that, no, it wasn't Close Encounters. It was more akin to something like Night of the Living Dead or The Birds or you know, that that's really what he was going for. Not, <laughs> he wasn't going for awe. He was going for, you know, suspense and horror. Dread. Uh, and dread, right? Um, but so obviously it was a film I couldn't wait to see. And I think, I think part of that, part of the disappointment that, that, uh, that I felt and, you know, you felt and people in general felt with the film at the time was because of the anticipation of going to see this alien invasion movie and then walking out and going like, huh. Um, but I mean, it is a film that for me at least has grown a lot in estimation. Like the more I see it, the more I like it. That's what happens in my case. Um, but I, but I want to go like like I was saying I want to go step by step. First of all, how great I don't know if you how great is that opening title sequence? I love it. Yeah, uh, it's very the, the, like Fincher or or oh no yeah. I was thinking of uh, Cronenberg's Crash. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. And 
the music, obviously, a very Bernard Herrmann-esque, mm-hmm. um, you know, thing that James uh, Newton Howard is doing. Again, a terrific score from James Newton Howard. Absolutely. You look at that one, like that title screen, the title uh, sequence is, is great. Uh, and the film starts. And I think, look, let's, let's forget about the ending for just a minute and the way that the story is built. I think we can agree that uh, Shyamalan's handling of suspense of building the story, of um, of kind of easing you into your chair. I think, like, the film works very well as a suspenseful film throughout its um, entire running time. There are many scenes that are just, they get, on, they, you get, like, the hairs on the back of your neck standing up kind of thing. Um, like, that that great scene, I, I think it's a great scene, when, when um, the invasion has already started and Joaquin Phoenix is sitting in his... Um, well, they're in the house, and he's like in his room or something. He's watching a, a video on television that is supposedly a like a Brazilian birthday video or something mm-hmm. where alien sighting. And that scene, uh, like, it gets me every time. Even like like uh, when when he's like watching the screen, and then all of a sudden the alien appears, and he sort of goes back into his chair. He goes like, "Whoa!" And he like 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 backs up into his chair. There's something so palpable about that scene. Um, yeah, that, no, that's it's interesting you bring that up because. I certainly was affected by that particular moment when I first saw the movie with an audience because we all sort of jumped in unison. Mm-hmm. And then in stark contrast, we'll get to it, but the um, there's a similar moment. I think they're looking at a cell phone video in The Happening. <laughs> yeah, yeah, okay. And the whole audience just started laughing. <laughs> right, because it was supposed to be something else. Yeah, um, no, yeah, yeah we're... We're gonna get to that, but uh, but yeah, going back to this, what's so great about that scene? I think, uh, and the reason it worked for you and for me and people in the audience is because there's something. It's so powerful because I think we can all relate to that one scene because I think we've all had a moment in our lives um, uh, where we've seen something. Nine eleven, buddy. Well, I mean, not. I'm not going to say specifically <laughs> that we saw an alien sighting on a video, but what I mean is like that that idea of being riveted by something by some news event. Oh yeah. And, you know, like, so you're watching the screen intently, you know, because now we're going to show exclusive footage of blah, blah, blah. And so whatever it is, like, you're watching it and then you see it and it sort of shocks you. And I think we can all relate to that because we've all had a moment like that in our lives where we where we see that. And at that moment, it's just so convincingly played by Joaquin Phoenix and the, the, the it, it's so suspensefully put together that, yeah, at that moment, we're all with him. We're all sort of watching that screen and together with him and say, okay, well, what, what are we going to see? What are we going to see? And boom, there it is. And we all sort of like jump back because we go like, whoa, it's true. It's happening. That This is an alien invasion. Yeah, uh, I, I it, totally concur with that. I think, I don't know, this is, a, this is far-fetched, but I was thinking just now, because um, pretty much any filmmaker who experienced 9-11 mm-hmm. wound up incorporating their reaction, the response, their emotion into yes. a story of some kind. Mm-hmm. And this this movie could very well be like M. Night Shyamalan's 9-11 movie to some degree. Not not in the way that Spielberg's War of the Worlds is. No, right, yeah. I mean, Spielberg's War of the Worlds is essentially a, a burlesque of 9-11, like, but made into, like, a film. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I don't mean that necessarily as a slight, but what I'm saying is, like, yeah, yeah. Uh, Spielberg's 9-11 movie is very much a 9-11 movie. Yeah, Dakota Fanning at one point goes, are those the terrorists? You know. Yeah, right. 
like like a hundred percent. But yeah, I, I I think I agree with you. It is very likely. You know, um, I don't I don't know that he said it in interviews, but it is very likely that signs was in part his reaction to nine eleven. Yeah, because we all lost faith in humanity, and we were all questioning, yeah. you know, yes. just where evil derives from. And you know, I like the theory circulating around that I just sort of came across today with interpreting the aliens as demons, as personal demons that Mel Gibson's character has to overcome. And and like the idea of the water being holy and tell me about that because I'm not familiar with the theory. I I just sort of read it in bits and pieces about like, I'll, I'll send you a link to to so you can read upon, read it, read it yourself, but just, you know, very, you know, superficially, there's just a couple of people out there who strongly feel that because this movie revolves around a priest and it's about a crisis of faith mm-hmm. that the aliens themselves represent you know demons that Mel Gibson has to you know confront and okay. overcome on the on, based on you know him losing his wife and him losing his faith i, I mean it's it's an interesting idea to look at that look at it that way and just say, well, these were never aliens to begin with. These are actually demons. Because even to some degree, the the, the 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 demon effect, just the makeup, the the makeup of the of the whole demon of itself, or uh, gosh, I'm saying demon already. Look at me. <laughs> the the look of the alien in this movie kind of reminded me of. A larger, taller version of the demons in the gate. Okay. Like. And, okay, yeah. <laughs> a la- larger, taller, and a little bit less. By the way, I, I, much like you, The Gate is a film I like from my childhood. Of course. It's, it's all good. Um, but, you know, it, there, there's, a, there's a certain element, like a corny element to it. Oh, um, for sure. 100%. Liquor versions, but I think I see what you're saying. Yeah, they they are a little bit like the demons from the gate. Um, just you know, yeah, you're right. Uh, that that's an, I hadn't thought about that. I do think it's an interesting notion, though, um, because I do think that that's exact. I mean, this is not this is no secret, but the film is actually about the priest. Yeah, uh, you know, or well, preacher, uh, pastor. Um, yeah, be- it's a character study essentially. It's a character study, like, and that's the thing. So, Sixth Sense, Unbreakable, now Signs. That's the thing that I think I, I think it has great value in terms of Shyamalan's work is that he uses these sort of genre constructs mm-hmm. to explore themes of the human condition um, that, that that interest him, uh, th- um, things that concern him. So obviously, uh, there are movies about faith or about identity or or about like communication, which I, I again I, I reiterate I think that Sixth Sense is about that about communication in families. Yeah, and fa- family dynamics for sure pop up constantly. Um, it, that comes out a lot. Uh, Unbreakable is maybe about, like we said, about identity, about like your place in the world. Who are you, and what is your place here? Like, what are you, what are you meant to do or be, or whatever it is? That's definitely what Unbreakable is ultimately about. Even though it's put into like a superhero origin story, but it's really just about finding your place, finding your place in your life. And then Signs is about that, about coming to terms with um, coming to terms with with loss. Um, Again. Uh, yeah, exactly. Coming to terms with faith uh, and with the nature of faith. Because I think uh, people, uh, you know, you, you, you look at it like, okay, it's a story of a, of a preacher who's lost his faith. 
but by the end of the movie, what you realize, it's not that he's lost his faith. He, he hasn't lost his faith. He, he still believes there's God. It's just that he's pissed off at him. Mm. That's really what we discover because you, you see that by the end of it, because like throughout the entire, um, throughout the entire movie, you know, it's, it's painted as this preacher who's lost his faith, but really what he is, he's just, he's mad at God. And so he's, he's turned his back on him, right? He's, he, 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 that's why he's, he's denying him. Right. And so at the end, when he's sitting with his son and his son's having the asthma attack and he's trying to like, um, you know, uh, sort of help him recover. And uh, he starts to like he uh, there's a very emotional scene from Mel Gibson where he starts to go like he goes like, I hate you. He starts like he starts like scream and you realize he's actually talking to God at that moment. So he does believe in him. He's just mad at him. He's, he's mad at him because he feels that he's taken things from him. He's taken his wife from him. He's, um, you know, it's like, I've been loyal. I'm a preacher. I've, I've preached your word. And okay, here, you took my wife from me. And now you're going to take my kid, too. It's like, I hate you. You know, well, like, why are you doing this to me? And, and so he, he has to come back around to, to, to facing the fact that it's not that he's lost his faith. It's that he's mad at God. And uh, so he has to basically sort of have it out with him, um, get it off his chest, and then he can he can come back to you can go back to it. It's interesting that I should yeah. uh, that I say all this. I'm not a man. I'm not a person of faith. By the way, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that uh, up front. Um, I'm not a person of faith. I'm an agnostic. Um, yeah, that's where I stand. Yeah. So ultimately, the, the, this film does not at all speak to me on that level. But I can certainly appreciate it as a character study. I can believe the story of a preacher who's lost his faith. Like I and and I can I can believe that 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 character that Mel Gibson plays has those feelings like they're they're credible and because the movie is about that that's that's what when i say that I, it, it gets better for me with each viewing is because i've i've been able to sort of separate uh i've been able to say okay fine i'm gonna stop looking at this as the alien invasion movie that it isn't um because it, it is interesting i mean he, it is kind of an alien invasion movie it's essentially it's a it's an alien invasion movie uh as a as a chamber piece because basically the whole thing takes place at the farmhouse um and, but it's, but it isn't, I think because it's about his, his crisis of faith, it's, it's a home invasion movie, you know? I mean, it could, <laughs> it could be, it could be, if you could tell the same story, the same exact story, and you could make it be about, I don't know, a gang of criminals trying to break into uh, Mel Gibson's farmhouse, like straw dogs or whatever it is. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it could be about that. But uh, and it would be the same essential. It could be the same essential storyline about a preacher that that lost his faith and and gets it back by by defending his home against these invaders who happen to be drug dealers. Let's say right. Um, but no, uh, Shyamalan chose to make it about. He, he chose to frame it within a science fiction narrative of an alien invasion. I guess because that's yeah. I mean, admittedly, that is more interesting and something that hadn't been done in that way. So yeah, that it was an interesting that will story. grab an audience. It- you know, it'll right. make them curious enough to get into the theater. And right. I think because most people, this is a universal concern or inquiry that any person can can have, whether you're, you know, of, of, of faith or not, of just like, what is, you know, what does it all mean? But more or less, you know, what I think, you know, because the movie is called Signs, I think it's also asking the questions of, you know, the the differences between a sign and a coincidence, synchronicity. It's like that whole argument of some people I know believing, well, it's all random chaos and, you know, we're just sort of fumbling through life and there's no rhyme or reason. There's no grand design. 
there 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 is no matrix. It's just we're all here. That's 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 that. Yeah. And I think well, I I think that's what Mel Gibson's monologue to Joaquin Phoenix is essentially kind of hinting at. Really, is do you think you know this is a good thing or a bad thing, or do you do you, th- do you take this as a sign of something? Right. Or is it just something random that's going to happen and we're all doomed? You right. know, or I think he's trying to also focus on optimism versus pessimism to some degree in that moment. But you know, at the very end, I think it's trying to ask the audience too, um, or it's no, it's asking Mel Gibson's character in that moment: Was what my wife said cosmically significant? Exactly, right. Um, and well, it is right. I mean, in, in the world of the movie, in the reality of the movie, that's the whole that that's the twist. That's the big revelation at the end. Is that okay? His wife's death was important. His wife had to die so that he would have the tools to defend himself against these alien invaders in his house. Like if that hadn't happened, maybe he wouldn't know that I don't know, it's it's weird, right? But like but that's that's essentially what the film is telling us. Yeah, right? and and, but, and Joaquin but, Phoenix would have had to have moved in. Right. Like all of that would have had to happen in order for and all of the things, you know, like the asthma, the, like the asthma is what saves his kid from from the toxin that the the alien shoots at him or something, right? Um, because his throat's closed, so he doesn't actually breathe it in. The, um, the uh, exactly, you know, the fact that Joaquin Phoenix moves in because his wife died, and he's a baseball player, and he's got the the bat. I mean, it all, you know, it, it all has meaning. It all had to happen that way. It was preordained, you know. Uh, whatever the cosmic fates or God or whatever it is, uh, uh, put it together so that that was the whole point. So his wife's death had that higher purpose, right? I mean that that's ultimately what is it, what the tells Is us. it wrong for me to still find it silly instead of profound? <laughs> well, no, you're you're perfectly uh, welcome to find it. Silly. <laughs> in, in it is kind of, I guess, but but it I mean it's ultimately the same think about it. It is the same ending as Wide Awake, just uh done in a much more effective, spectacular way like as far as delivering the message of the great revelation, but it's so, but if Wide Awake is a, is about a quest for God, and then you have this really silly sort of ending where, oh, there he is, there's God, <laughs> by this little kid. Um, you know, uh, here you sort of like, yeah, you know, there's God. The, the God that you turned your back on uh, was actually there all along. He, you know, he had, you had to go through this pain of losing your wife, but it was there was a reason for it. Like she, she had to give you that message. She had to be able to deliver that message to you so that you will be able to, to defend your That's family. Just, it's it, just crazy to me that like in a moment where – I mean, my flight or fight would be in full effect for me to not think about anything else than what's going on in that room. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, maybe that's what the film is sort of challenging is the idea that maybe a message was just sent to his through his subconscious mm-hmm. in that moment. And yeah. you're supposed to be- I wouldn't believe it. I, I certainly don't. <laughs> I don't think I think I mean the way it's played out in the movie it's rather lengthy like it goes it, it goes to like a flashback and then um you know you you sort of you're because we 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 see that scene throughout the film right mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's 
because it's being set up. So we see we see him flashing back to his wife's death. We see we see it's sort of built up throughout the movie, and then you eventually have that moment where he remembers her her dying moments and her her dying words, and how at that time they didn't make any sense to him. And he he tells Joaquin Phoenix what his interpretation of those words is, which is just that his that she was having a she was remembering Joaquin Phoenix playing a baseball game or something right before she died, and that's why she said those things. The point is, I I think maybe your interpretation of the ending, maybe you might be a little literal, uh, taking it too literally, like he actually stands there for like five minutes remembering all this. I think the idea is that it, it comes to him in, in like a flash, you know, like, yeah, that's, but I guess it's just because that's how the film is presenting it. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's presenting it that way for us, the dumb audience members to like understand. So like, we have to go through the entire flashback and be like, Oh, so that's what she meant. But like, uh, I, I guess, I guess in the reality of the movie, it, it comes to Mel Gibson in like a split, you know, like he's standing there. What do I do? What do I do? And he, he, he sees the baseball bat and he's like, that's what she meant. And, you know, like, so, so like, it's sort of, because, I mean, I, I guess we, we are to understand, I, I can believe that if this was his wife, he saw his wife die, these were his di- her dying words. I'm, I, I can believe that this is something that stayed with him. You know what I mean? I, it's, it's probably something that, that has stayed with him throughout, through all this time. I don't think it's something, it's probably something he thinks about regularly, his wife's dying breaths. I mean, I'm pretty sure, I can imagine that's a believable idea. Yeah, maybe. You know uh, that that uh, that a person would carry the his wife's final moments with him. Sure. No. Right? Sh- yeah. I, I think it just in that is instance. If I saw an alien holding my kid, I mean, I'm I am framing it as, as in me, me, me. I know. No, no, I know. And- I, of course, but we, <laughs> that's what we do. I mean, that that that's obviously a, a thriller asks that of us. I mean, we're supposed to put ourselves in Mel Gibson's shoes at that moment in order to feel the terror or whatever it is that we're supposed to be feeling at that moment, right? So it's totally okay for you to say me, me, me. But go ahead. Yeah, no, but I... And, and I guess just... I don't know. Thinking of Swing Away is just... And then Joaquin picking up the bat and then, you know, tips over water and, like, all that... It it, it plays... I know it's supposed to be, you know, really, uh, you know, a spectacular, awe-inspiring moment, but... It still plays to me as really ridiculous, and I wish it didn't because I like the overall existential crisis, the crisis of faith theme in general. Okay. Um, you know, even something like even if something as silly as From Dust Till Dawn, I love it when Harvey Keitel decides, like, you know what, I'm going to kick these fucking vampires' asses, and I, I believe again. Okay. Yeah. But in this movie, it's just. Uh, I want it to work so bad because I like, uh, God knows I love Joaquin Phoenix, and I think Mel Gibson is pretty good in this movie, overall. I, I think he's fantastic in this movie. Uh, like Again, much like uh, like Bruce Willis in Sixth Sense and in Unbreakable, um, I think that Mel Gibson gives one of his best performances in this movie. Uh, it's, it's a very different character than what we're used to seeing him as. That, yeah. That, I mean, at the time, I mean, it's interesting to talk about it now that, that you know, what Mel Gibson is today in our, in our collective consciousness as opposed to what he was at the time that this, you know, when Signs came out, Mel Gibson was one of the biggest stars out there. And he was primarily someone we knew as like an action star, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and so 
you know, I think at the time, this was before all those tapes had been released and before his anti-Semitic rants and before like all that stuff that happened. So at the time, you know, he was somebody we, we basically liked and we liked him as like an action hero and, you know, a leading man. And so this is a very uncharacteristic performance for him. Uh, uh, he's not playing, he's playing against type in that, in that film. And now we, like now that we know that he's, I mean, he's Catholic and all of that and a, 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 a devout Catholic, it must have been an interesting role for him to play. It, it must have pushed him to go to some interesting places as an actor. Yeah, I, I think he's. I think he's good. I think I don't know. Maybe I wouldn't. I don't want to say he's too sleepy. I mean, one of the big arguments I've heard from detractors too is like Shyamalan's tendency to have all of his actors whisper a lot. Well, he he creates a mute because he again it's it's the personal touch, right? Uh, it is a personal touch. He seems to like that. I mean, he wants to create that that ambiance, that atmosphere. And and he, I think he's trying to create an intimacy, and so mm-hmm. he does have everybody sort of be very muted. There uh, are times when I th- when I like it, and there are times where I'm like, well, why aren't you guys talking just a little bit louder right now? But right. you know, that's not that's definitely not one of the reasons why I have reservations. I think I don't know. There, there's there there remains a disconnect for me with signs to get emotionally invested in Mel Gibson's plight. And you, you just can't get past the ending. Like the, it just, you'd add, it, you like, it's possible. It's possible that like, that is just, you know, sort of, um, creating a fog over the entire movie for me. But, you know, rewatching it now, I, there's certain instances, and, you know, we brought them up with, you know, Joaquin v- viewing the, the newscast, and certainly there's there's things throughout the movie that I just kind of go, well, that was well done, and that was well shot, and um, I, I'm not too crazy about the the being trapped in the basement sequence and everything going black. Uh, I, wish, I wish I found that more terrifying than it actually is. Um... Well, the first time you saw it, it might have been. Yeah, uh, a little bit. Yeah, yeah. It's also about. I mean, it was obviously that in that moment he was trying to create something that was going to work in a movie theater. You know, uh, sure. Where where you're sitting in that dark room, and then all of a sudden the light, it's just like pitch black in there, and all you've got is that little like flashlight. And I think like yeah, that that's a scene that definitely works much better in, in like a movie theater environment than it does at home. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and also, well, yeah, it's. The, the film is full of these suspenseful, really nicely done scenes. Like also, like when 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 Mel Gibson is investigating the cornfield, and there's like this this one yeah. shot of like an alien's leg, like just sort of going in. No, that's like, good. Little things like that, you go like, ooh, that's and that's why. I mean, I I can see why for some like just to to have everything build up to an ending that is a bit of a. Let down. I mean, I, obviously, for it to sort of boil down to that, it does seem sort of. I, I can see why that. I mean, I, I, I can still understand why that could be uh, unsatisfying, and it was. I mean, it was for me as well when I first watched the movie. That's what I mean. That I had to see the film more than like I had to see it again to start to appreciate the other things about it that I felt worked. Uh, at the time that I saw it, I liked it because I, I, I'm, I'm one of those that can forgive a film if the journey has been good maybe the destination is not 100% satisfying but if the journey has been good enough I'll give a movie a pass if it's particularly well done as it was in this case 
that I, I just thought back, well, all those suspenseful scenes really were very effective. And while I was watching the movie, I, I was on the edge of my seat. If, if the ending was a bit of a wet fart, well, fair enough. But, um, you know, I mean, it's a three-star movie because, like, the, the, re- the rest of it was pretty, in, like, it was entertaining. I, I enjoyed myself while I was on the ride. Um, yeah, I, I'm more, I don't know why I shouldn't be, but I guess I, I, I grew restless. And at the same time, you know, thinking back to the first time I saw it, of course I was curious to see where it was going to wind up. And, of course, yeah. I was caught up. Right. I th- I do think it's an interesting, um, like it's it's like the antithesis for me with Unbreakable, where I can say, well, that's not the strongest ending in the world, but I can get behind the overall thematic context and just I'm more emotionally involved. I care more, and with Signs, I it's it really is like. Just because I know what it's all leading up to, I, I can't get as caught up in it. Yeah, you're just like, just like, oh god, what's? Well, you're, you're sort of in that what's the point uh, phase. Well, why am I going to bother sitting through this since I know it's going to get to that wet fart of an end? Yeah, yeah, but I mean, at the same time, I like its questions, and I certainly like the intent behind, you know, his monologue to his uh, brother in that moment when they're, you know practically just, you know, falling asleep on the couch or whatever, and they're just having a conversation about the about the bigger themes and the bigger ideas. Um, for some reason, it just doesn't hit me in the way um, Unbreakable or even, you know, the, the final moments of Sixth Sense does. And it's, it's not the fault of the filmmaker. I'm not... <laughs> but I just... It's... I mean, just- some it's, degree it is. If if uh, he was not able to deliver the themes in a way that that you find satisfying, then yeah, it definitely is his fault. Yeah, to some degree, I think. I think his his next couple of films are very interesting. Okay. Because, I guess the village is the turning point where people. I mean, I know, I know that it was almost like split down the middle with signs where I knew people who loved it. Yeah. And I knew people who actively hated it. Yeah. The village is more leaning towards the hatred category yeah. this time. I, I think there were a couple defenders here and there, but overall, it really did not sit well with people. It, it invoked a lot of a strong emotion to where it, it could have been the turning point for him, where audiences were just like, I don't know if I can get excited about a new Shyamalan movie now. Right, exactly. No, you're right, uh, um, because it, it bears mentioning that uh, Sixth Sense is a huge hit, Unbreakable was not as big a hit as The Sixth Sense, but Signs was. Signs yeah. was a huge. So it was a, it was a hit film. Um, so yeah, you had like kind of split down the middle. People loved it, people didn't. Uh, but essentially, it was it was a, it was enough of a hit. It was definitely a big hit because there was a lot of anticipation for the village. And um, and then I think you're, you hit the nail on the head. It is basically the moment where things started to turn for Golden Boy Shyamalan, as far as people were concerned. And I think it, it definitely is sort of the, the line in the sand where his fans had to decide, okay, am I going to stick with this guy or not? Um, and I think it's very interesting, and I want to talk about this for a second, because people would ask, like, okay, well, well, so what happened to Shyamalan? What happened to this guy? And do you have any theory of what happened to this guy, sort of thing? Do you, do you have an answer to that question? Um... I think he might have just... 
I mean, a lot of people would probably cite this as, as true, is that he just got lost in his own vision and mm. kind of driven by ego. Maybe, I mean, maybe it really was just audiences, audience expectations and expecting that twist. Or yeah. because audiences really turned on him with The Village, his response with Lady in the Water is actually what I think is fi- makes that movie interesting. Yeah. Um, but The Village, I'm right down in the middle on it, um, which is a strange place to be, <laughs> since most most people, I think, feel one way or the other. Um, it's, a, it's a really weird movie to watch now, and, and like thinking of uh, some of the actors that appear here that I was like, oh, Jesse Eisenberg is in this? Oh, Michael Pitt is in this? Wow. You're uh, right. Eisenberg is in it. I totally forgot that. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's one that I didn't revisit now. But, uh, but I mean, I have seen it many, many times, so, like, I didn't need to. But, um, uh, yeah, you're right. Jesse Eisenberg's in it. Uh, <laughs> I hadn't... But, uh, yeah, Michael Pitt's in it. That I remember. It's actually got a pretty good cast. Oh, yeah. I will, I will say that Bryce Dallas Howard in this is, again, one of the better performances throughout most of his films. Mm-hmm. Um, I think she's really strong here, and uh, but in, again, in contrast, I think Adrian Brody's pretty terrible. Uh, okay, um, you you probably feel that he goes over the top. Yes, uh, <laughs> he goes. Uh, you know, like uh, like uh, as Tropic Thunder thought, taught us, right? He goes. Uh huh. Right. Um, fair enough. I I mean, all right. Here's where I stand on the village. Hold on to your hat. I actually, it, it's my favorite of. Uh, Whoa! It is. I, I think it's his because I'm and I'm looking at it from a point of of uh, film artistry. I really think that of all his, it is his most stunningly composed film. Um, it, it's 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 this one film where he, like all his talents as a storyteller, he he puts them to use in creating a very rich sort of cinematic experience. Um, and that's why I think it's his best film. I mean, I, I guess ultimately maybe ne- it'd be neck and neck with Unbreakable, but um, but there's something about the way, the elegance of the village, um, the, 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 those, those shot compositions, again, you know, working with fantastic cinematographers. Um, and uh, I, I believe Roger Deakins shot the village. I believe he did. Yes. Uh, and James Newton Howard's amazing musical score, which at times reminds me of um, of Elmer Bernstein's score for American Werewolf in London. Ooh. And American Werewolf in London is actually my favorite film, like, of all time. So... I any- think um, you and Edgar Wright, I think, that, I think that's also his favorite film, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, really? That's yeah. interesting. Um, and well, that's that's a nice thing to have. In or at with. least it's the film that changed his life, I think. Okay, yeah. well, that's, that's certainly yeah. But uh, but that is, like it happens to be my favorite movie, and I, and so anything that reminds me of it to any degree, um, I'd be like, oh, I'm down with this. Um, I love the the musical score for the village. I think it's a it's it is definitely like the best score that I've heard from James Newton Howard. I mean, it's it's it, there's this poetic beauty to it. Um, the way the strings come in. Um, uh, I think I can understand why people don't like the village. Uh, I, 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 I know that there are people who 
uh, I think. Well, let's see. I'm curious to hear your your take on it first, though, like a, so that I can sort of uh, tell you. <laughs> I want to I, I want to know like you said you're down the middle. So what are your like besides you said you said like Bryce Dallas Howard's good, Adrian Brody's bad. But what do you think of the story as a whole? Do you feel it works? Overall, I do. I like the idea of a community of people mm-hmm. who seem to have experienced something, you know, life-altering, again, possibly traumatic, mm-hmm. deciding to create their own space, their own world, where they can they can be in control of their environment. Like, the idea of fear as being, you know, it's kind of, it can, it can corrupt the human experience. And there are certain factions in the world that use fear for, for evil purposes to manipulate people. Yes. And in here they're, they're using it with good intentions for the people in their community, for their family members, for themselves to sort of shield themselves from the outside world. And I find that that overall, again, much like with science, the overall theme and questions that it brings up, I'm on board 100%. Mm-hmm. Certain elements, once again, I think some of the dialogue is a little too Ren fair. And I know that it's, again, it's, it's um, a facade. I realize that, that they're adopting in this, in this world. And it's, you know, the, the kind of language they use, I guess, would be appropriate in, in that setting and that time period that they're trying to evoke. It just, it gets a little, it's a little cheesy for me at times. Um, well, some, of, some of the things that come out of their mouths. Th- there's this one line that Sigourney Weaver has at one point. She's like, what is your meaning? <laughs> <laughs> like, when, when someone is like asking her, like I think uh, Joaquin Phoenix or, or William Hurt is like talking to her. Uh, and then she's like, what is your meaning? And I was like, yeah, what is your meaning? Indeed. What is your yeah. meaning? Um, no, <laughs> but um, I'll, the reason that that doesn't bother me that much, because I, it was one of the criticisms uh, thrown at the film was, yeah, the stilted dialogue, people don't talk this way, uh, the towns, um, et cetera, et cetera. But I think, I, I think, I mean, it's deliberate. Like you yourself said, it's a facade, right? Um, and... I think one reason why people didn't like it also is because it was one of those things where people could already maybe start to predict the twist. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. That some people were that's like, fair. please don't tell me that's the twist. Please don't tell me that's what it's going to turn out to be. Please no. And, and that but is- I like the reason for the twist, I guess. I like exactly. why. Um, I mean, even if it's revealed to us in a very... Uh, kind of eye rolling manner, I think a little bit with just like oh let's ta- let's open up the box right let's well, take out the photo. It's a ritual apparently. I mean they do this. Uh, 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 we uh, you, that's the sense you get right that, uh, yeah. that this is the ritual they perform as a because they're basically a it's a self help group. Um and so they they've built these rituals and um because that, that's what we find out right that they all met at a at a at a self-help uh, group because they were all victims of uh, of tragedy, I guess. 
who had lost uh, someone in their family to violence or whatever. So you get the sense that, and then you, you look at that picture, which is obviously from like the early eighties or something. Uh, you, you see like that awesome, uh, late seventies hairdo on, um, on Brendan Gleeson. Um, <laughs> but, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, but it, like, I think exactly like, see you, you just said it. Yeah. If the twists were just arbitrary, Oh, it turns out that, yeah. Um, Oh, it turns out that, uh, they live it. They're not in the past. Um, then it would probably be kind of stupid, but the, I think that the reason for it is, it, it speaks so uh, in such a strong way to the motivations of the whole film, like like every every like what the film is actually about. What you just said about fear, right? Um, how how these people have led themselves to live this very sheltered uh, ex- existence because of their fear. Um, how they've created this community as a way to sort of um, uh, get away from the violence that has traumatized them, and then inevitably, because it's part of human nature that violence does eventually strike in their own community, and now they have to figure out how to deal with it. Um, so that that stuff, I think, is so strong that it makes the twist... It, it, makes, it, it just makes the whole thing very satisfying to me personally. For some reason, I was able to relate to those particular themes of these damaged people. I think because I, I ultimately was able to say, wow, this is a story about a bunch of really damaged people who, who found a way who thought they had found a way to, to escape their, those traumas and could not because it was, it wasn't realistic. Um, to think yeah. it was, it was, they were naive to think that, that they could be like escape that because it ultimately that sort of violence, that sort of trauma, it's just a part of humanity and it will eventually find them. And that's, and, and so it happens inevitably. Um, and I, I mean, I, this is probably pretty clear, but obviously Shyamalan, when he wrote them, he he's from Philadelphia. He was obviously inspired by the Amish. Sure. He basically said, "Well, what if people deliberately decided to become Amish? Like, like, like you know, like like as a, as a, you know, if he looked at it, I, I can see how somebody might find that offensive. You know what I mean? Uh, I think people did. You know, like the, like oh, so that's how he sees the Amish." You know, and and I'm going like, well, but I don't really think that that's how he sees the Amish. I think he was obviously inspired by that. You know, he said, well, this is an interesting community. Um, let me tell a story that uses elements of that because I because I'm familiar with them because I'm from Philadelphia, and let me tell a story that, you know, I, I, like he, I just I think it's interesting. All right, I, I like one of the reasons why it's my favorite film of his is because I I'm very I admire that he had the balls to do that to just tell this really weird story that he was going to sell it as a sort of, um, you know, because it, the way the film was is presented, you think you're, you're watching like a gothic romance. Mm-hmm. And basically that's what it starts out as. It's this gothic sort of romance between Joaquin Phoenix and, and Bryce Dallas Howard. And, and that's the final note it sort of leaves you on is just yeah. a love story. Right. Kind it of ultimately- resolution. That's what it is, and he's framing it as kind of like a gothic romance. I think that uh, I'm not sure. I, I'm, I'm pretty, I think there was a there was a uh, a situation there where he was maybe going to do uh, a new adaptation of uh, either Jane Eyre or Wuthering Heights or one of those. Huh. I'm pretty sure that, that that's where it came from. He 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 was toying around with the idea of doing something like that, and then so that so then he eventually fashioned it into this story. Um, 
And I think that when people get hung up on the final twist, they forget that the film is built in a really interesting way where there's tons of twists. You know? There are. And, you know, it's funny because, like, again, we're talking about the grander sort of, um, you know, just personal statement maybe from the filmmaker of this idea of damaged people learning how to adapt. And I love that central thesis of, okay, again, maybe even something like um, as devastating as 9-11. A a whole bunch of people can't believe something like this would happen. They can't handle it, so they just go out into the woods and build their own community to hide away from the evils of the world. Mm -hmm. Uh, But, mm, (laughs) there's, again, certain things that keep it from greatness more just him spelling things out again, but I, I think it's you know a, a moment like when Adrian Brody ultimately puts on one of the costumes and runs around and gets killed. Um, right. Uh, uh, that doesn't work for me, and especially the the sudden cut to his family saying, oh no, he found the costume we hid under the floorboards. <laughs> but actually, no, you know, I think that that actually leads to, so, to something that's kind of unintentionally funny. Um, like, okay, well, we, 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 were, we were talking about the twist. I, I wanted to go, like, that's one of them, right? Yeah. Uh, it, you, you think it doesn't work that he, he puts on the costume and, and goes to chase after Bryce Dallas Howard. Um, but it is part of, I, that's just one of those elements that I think are, are thrown in there for some added suspense. What would motivate him to do that? Well, we get the sense that he kind of, like, he has a crush on Bryce Dallas Howard, right? Yeah. Uh, so, at the end, you're not sure what he's going to do. It, it, it Maybe he just wants to play with her or something. Like <laughs> you, uh, because you get the sense that he has a crush on her, and that's, and, and that's why he, he tries to kill Joaquin Phoenix, is because he, he's jealous. Right? Right, right. I got that. That I, I was going to backtrack just a bit. When Shyamalan hit the scene. They were comparing him to Spielberg. They were also comparing him to Hitchcock. Right. Ooh, okay. Yeah. You know, that and and I need to say that up front, that's not his fault. No. You know, it's not. That, you know, if if people want to make those comparisons, people can make those comparisons. But they were making them. And I do think that this is the one film where uh, he sort of he uses the most he has that Hitchcock thing where he he there's a lot of misdirection throughout the entire film, subverting um, expectations, which is what what Hitchcock was so was yeah. was brilliant at doing, and that's exactly. I mean, he more than any any other of his films, that's uh, Shyamalan basically constantly does it, um, and it goes. I mean, right there where you where the film starts, and you think Joaquin Phoenix is the lead, um, and sure. you, it's taken out of the film. You know what? Maybe twenty minutes into it or something. So He's not just, really given a whole lot. Well, he isn't, but like when you f- you imagine that he will be given more, you- he's presented as the romantic leading man. Mm-hmm. He's presented as the heroic character. So, and you think that's what you're watching because you have you have that whole scene where the the invading monsters are coming into the into the village, and he he has to sort of help out and helps to hide. You know, uh, there- it's a suspenseful sequence. At this point in the story, we believe the monsters are real, right? 
and so we're wondering what this is. And so we he in that scene he's presented as kind of an action hero. You know, he's sort of uh, helping to rescue Bryce Dallas Howard. And that that whole sequence. So he's presented as the hero of the film, and then all of a sudden he gets taken out. And so we realize, oh, we're not watching a story about him. We're watching a story about her. That's sure. The, and again, we still think the monsters are real, right? So she's going to go into the forest, and you know the the, and that's where. I think that people, um, some people, I think the movie lost them when the monsters were revealed to not be real. Mm-hmm. I think that, that that's where some people got lost. I didn't. I was with it. Uh, I actually thought it was a refreshing and unexpected thing. Um, but like, how did you feel about it when, when, when uh, William Hurt takes her into the shed and shows her and tells her the truth? I was okay with it. I th- I started to get the impression that, you know, again, they were being protective and this was their, you know, mm-hmm. sort of questionable way of making sure nobody left. Mm. <laughs> and I, right. I, but I think, you know, it's funny because once we realize, you know, that after the Adrian Brody twist and then we get that other twist of like, well, it turns out it's modern times. Um, yeah. Mm, I think the one moment that really irks me is when M. Night shows up. And I'm surprised this hasn't come up sooner, but, I mean, you mentioned his acting in, in Praying with Anger actually being pretty good. Uh, well, pretty good, considering that... Uh, that's kind of an unfair way to say it. It's fine. It's good. It's, it's not fine. a bad... Well, he's fine. It's, I mean, look, it's his first movie. He's directing it. He's sure. acting in it. He, you know, all things considered, yeah, he's, he's perfectly fine. But... Not so much in his other films. I don't think he's... he's uh, it's funny because like his parents were doctors. I don't think he's playing a really good doctor in The Sixth Sense. Um, right. And Signs, he's he's okay. I'm willing to give him a pass in Signs, I guess. Yeah, he's got like a supporting role. And it's... it's I, I think... It, I think the problem is that it calls, it calls too much attention to itself. When, yeah. When, when a director is cameoing in a film... It doesn't always. It, it, maybe it shouldn't, but I think it's because we don't know him as an actor, and we feel that, that when he inserts himself into his films, it feels a little bit precious. Oh, we're going to be talking about that very shortly. Yeah, no, we're absolutely going to be talking about that in a minute. But uh, but the thing is that I think I that that don't like really, him in the village. You don't like, but he's he's barely in the village. Well, I know, but I just I, I don't like this idea of him. Telling his coworker not to get into conversations with people. Okay. I don't. I just find that strange. Like you, you're like a a park ranger. You're supposed to be helping. Why would you not get into conversations with people? Yeah, I think because he. I mean, what we understand later is that William Hurt uh, pays these people to sort of keep their mouths shut about the nature preserve. Uh, yeah. So and basically saying, oh, it's like that time that those reporters were asking questions. That was a very stressful time for me. Uh, like, I don't know. Mm, okay. I, I, the fact that he's sort of put himself... If you think about it, the role he's playing in the village, it's like this park ranger, but it's like this badass. <laughs> <laughs> like, like you know, he's basically chewing out the other dude, and he's like, ah, yeah, that was a very stressful time for me. Don't talk to people. Don't, you know, like, oh. You know, so maybe that's what it is that annoys you, that, oh, he has to... And then, of course, he has to... Sh- there's a reflection shot. And you have yeah. to see his face. It's just like this, oh, it's the cameo, it's the big cameo, you know, it's like, oh, when's he going to show up? There he is, you know, I, I, I can see why that's annoying, but it's only because it calls attention to itself. 
right? You right. Have I mean, look at it this way. What if it were a cameo from, like, a, a movie star? What, George what, Clooney. Yeah, let's say it was, like, you know, somebody who'd shown up. What if that were the case? What if it were, like, George Clooney or... Um, there were I rumors would... Johnny Depp was supposed to be in the movie, right? So, like, and then I think I think Johnny Depp was originally cast in the Adrian Brody part or something, but then something. I, I would still I, find it silly. Um, yeah, I guess, right? Just say it's like this arbitrary cameo. So I suppose that that it, it could have just been you know the the guy going in, getting the medicine, and yeah. helping her. It's just adding an extra, you know, five minutes that really aren't necessary, in my yeah. opinion. Right, that they aren't necessary. But, like, um, now going back to the whole thing with Adrian Brody, right? Uh, that thing at the end with where he puts on the costume, that's there for, like, an added suspense speed because we're not supposed to really know. Because if William Hurt just told her that, they're, that the monsters aren't real, right? Now she's in the woods and she actually runs into one of the monsters. Um, and so we're supposed to, at that moment, I think, start to say, wait a minute, so what is this? Weren't the monsters not real? <laughs> Here's one of them now. Well, what is this? And it, and it is kind of a nicely built suspense sequence, the way that like, uh, he chases her and then falls into the trap that she set for him. And um, I don't know, I think, I think it works as a climactic like, beat, like as a climactic suspense beat. And then, you know, it just tells you, yeah, so Adrian Brody put on the costume and went to chase after her. But uh, what I'm saying that for me, like I'm a big fan of sort of uh, black humor and irony. And maybe this wasn't supposed to be funny. Maybe it was supposed to be sad. But when she goes back at the end, when she already heads back to the um, to the village and and uh, walks in with the medicine, and then somebody like says, "Oh, uh, she she found one of the monsters in the forest and she killed him." <laughs> and then, like Adrian Brody's mom, like just goes like, "Oh no!" And like just, just like like weeping into her hands, right? And then, like that for some reason, that just makes me laugh. Like, like it's just like it's just like, this funny thing where, like, they can't say it, like, no, because they're still going to be lying to the to the community, right? Um, and yeah. The only, the only people who know the truth now, as far as as we understand it, are Bryce Dallas Howard and Hawking Phoenix. Um, so, like, they're gonna it, they're going to continue to perpetuate the lie. So, you know, the mother has to sort of grieve, you know, I, I don't know why I'm laughing at it, but, uh, but the, the, the fact that she just has to hold on to the secret and now, like, you know, uh, her son, you know, that the way that she realizes, the way she finds out that her son died, I just find it funny. Like, I, I don't, you know, it's, it's, um, it, I, I don't know what that says about me, but I guess it just says I have a dark sense of humor. Well, I guess it's weird that I had that reaction to the ending of Signs. Right, yeah, where you, like, so... I mean, I didn't laugh in the at that moment in the theater, maybe not, but, I, like, looking back on it and watching it again, yeah, that, that that's a moment that makes me laugh. Another thing that makes me laugh is that uh, they refer to the monsters as those we do not speak of, right? Mm-hmm, Harry Potter. Yeah, yeah. And for the first, like, 20 minutes of the movie, that's all they're talking about. So, like, I thought you guys don't speak of these. Why, like, why are you speaking of them and nothing else for the past quarter of an hour? Um, but yeah, th- those are the two things. No, but like I, I really like the village. I, I think that um, he, that Shyamalan is able to uh, really communicate all those themes that, that uh, you're talking about, and he does it in a story that's that's interesting, that's involving, uh, that's unique, and it has a lot of. Um, I just love the the look of the film, the the filmmaking technique behind it. Uh, the all the suspense in it is is effective. 
and then again, like when you watch it again, knowing where where it's all going, it still kind of works as a dramatic story of these damaged people. So, you know, it's it's I, I like it. I like it a lot. It's fine. It's it's weird because like I, again, I, I I know a lot of close film critics who actively think it's pure garbage. Um, but it, it, I you know what? It's funny. I I didn't see this in the theater. I waited just because I was like, you know what? After signs, I don't know how I feel. Right. I, I waited. That. I don't know how long. I mean, I'm, I'm, it might've been five or six years. Wow. I did not, I didn't know the twist and it was, a, it was maybe a case of low expectations that actually worked in its favor. And even rewatching it just this past week, I was like, you know what? This movie isn't, this isn't horrible. I don't know why people think it's so horrible. I don't think it's, I don't think it's his best movie, like you do. But right. I, I find again some some elements that I love, some things that make me roll my eyes, and <sighs> the lady in the water. Okay, this is a fascinating mess. I think I agree with you. It is a, definitely a fascinating mess. I um. I think the reason why I finally... Well, again, this was one I waited and waited a while on. I watched it because um, one of my favorite film podcasters, um, Jay Cheel of Film Junk, a Canadian podcast that everybody should check out, he you know, he defended this movie like nobody's business. And you know, was, was comparing it to like a movie like Cocoon and saying it, was, it, it reminded him of these, of these movies... Like that came out in the '80s, that just were very fantastical, where a group of people that all live in the same environment band together and do something extraordinary. Um, and that I, I think it's because I did grow up watching those kinds of movies and enjoying them as a kid. Um, I like when I mean, there's one thing I will say in all of them M Night Shyamalan movies, he's so good with location. And so good at creating a world or an environment that feels wholly unique and interesting and unlike anything we've 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 been to before. Absolutely. And that that holds true here, but I watch this and I'm baffled. I'm I watch this movie and I laugh. I'm entertained. I think it's this crazy ever-evolving bedtime story that he told to his kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and it just... It has this weird sense of wonder to it that is completely ridiculous from just the names of some of the things he comes up with, like narfs and scrunts. And yeah. I know people... I know people just always cite these things as complete negatives and reasons to hate the movie. Mm-hmm. Whereas I have this weird fascination with it. Like, I watch this thing and kind of... And it's not like in, you know, like a... uh, In the same way I would watch The Room in like, oh, this is so bad it's good and ironic kind of fashion. Yeah, I hear you. It's, It's just... It's surreal. And, you know, because a lot of these actors are so great and kind of taking it seriously, it adds this whole other layer to it. Um, 
you know, watching Giamatti and Jeffrey Wright and Jared Harris just going on and on about what to do and the rules of the this blue world and the, the, the crossword puzzles, the cereal box moment, that everything in this movie is baffling, and I can totally understand somebody's argument of it being, you know, uh, just a ridiculous mess. But I somehow find it enjoyable. Well, I mean that's that's good. I mean, like, uh, it's interesting what the what the podcast uh, the the person you said was defending it and compared it to like a coon. I'm sure that Shyamalan would love to hear that because it's so very clearly what he was trying to do with this movie. Like he he was so clearly trying to do like a throwback to the fantasy films of the '80s that he grew up watching. Um. And I do think that he, to some degree, he pulls it off. Um, but I think that the film's failure to really get completely there is the fact that it is just so damn personal. Um, Too that, personal. Yeah. Because, again, like you said, like he, world building, it's all great. It's a sense of place. And then the, even the stuff that he comes up with, Scrantz and Arms, it is interesting. And these are things that come from his imagination. Because see, he, the thing about Lady in the Water, that, I mean, it's a movie that he made for his kids. Yeah. And it's, and, but specifically for his kids. It's, it's like, the, the thing about the, this movie is like, it's not that, he, oh, I'm going to make a kid's movie. No. He wanted to make a film specifically for M. Night Shyamalan and his children. Um, to the be, point where if you stay till the end of the credits, there's yeah. a message to his kids. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, so I mean, like, that, that's the last time I'm telling you this story or something like that. And, um, and I mean, I think that that's nice, and I think that um, it's, I suppose it's admirable, first, that he would get to a point where he could be that self-indulgent, um, <laughs> and that they would let him do that, but the thing is that, exactly, I mean, unless you, I don't, for us, it can be an interesting watch, but for somebody else, it's completely incomprehensible, because these things are just so keyed into this mythology that he created for his own children, that there's a lot of narrative shortcuts that are going on there that we're just not sure what, like, you know, they're supposed to understand that. I'm sure they must love it, you know, because um, that was his big thing. Uh, that This is where he had his falling out with Disney because he, yeah. he, he'd put out all his films under the Disney, like, Touchstone Pictures or whatever, like through Disney. And this was the one where they were like, no, we can't follow you down with this one. This is not one that we can, this is, you know, we're not doing this. And so he was so pissed off. It's actually an interesting read. I would recommend if uh, you could pick it up. It's uh, um, The Man Who Heard Voices, I think is the name of it. Oh, yeah, uh, I heard about this. It's basically an autobiography. It's it, not an autobiography, but it's a, it's a biography of Shyamalan, but it's mostly about the making of Lady in the Water. And so it, it gives you some insight into into that um, that aspect. And it's the studios were perplexed by it, right? Yes, and ultimately Warner Brothers sort of figured yeah okay we'll we'll take the plunge we'll do this and so but it's just that it was Shyamalan's dream you know to like to because he was working for with Disney and he was kind of hoping that he would be able to put this movie out under the Walt Disney Pictures label you know so that so that this fantasy that he'd created for his children the movie of it would be would be a Disney movie you know um and so he was broken he was like heartbroken when that didn't work out and, you know, he went and he made the movie anyway, but, you know, his his dream was for it to be a Disney movie. Um, all that stuff, I mean, it's, it's, it's the fact that they went through with it is certainly interesting. I think that 
yeah, it doesn't work entirely because of that, because it is so personal. And so none, none of the elements of the film really make sense. No. Because we're sort of like... Uh, with with Unbreakable, he was able to take a comic book uh, uh, concept and ground it in reality. And I think that he would have been well served to do the same thing here. Like if you when you watch Unbreakable, you don't realize you're watching a comic book origin story. It sort of gradually comes to you, right? Yeah. And by the end of it, the characters themselves realize that they have participated in a in a comic book origin story. Um, and they could have kind of done the same thing here, you know. Instead of like having these rules laid out at the beginning, and you're like, what the, you know? It, oh, it's so dense. It's just like, what is this? You know, like like all that that narrative at the beginning, and then the 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 um his his the Korean neighbor who like tells tells him the stories. I mean, I'm like, what? It's too much. I, yeah, it's so hard to follow. Like going from point A to point B to point C, it's it's impossible to know like. You know, I'm not even sure why he's diving into the pool and getting all the stuff and. You know, like, how is he holding his breath for so long? Right. You know, I mean, they're just all Giamatti we're talking about. You know, this is the this is not like uh, the most svelte um, action guy diving into the pool to like do this. So yeah, exactly. He holds his breath for it. In order but he to- also, again, you know, I mean, we're we're talking about strong performances pretty much throughout, um, at least up until this point. Mm-hmm. Giamatti again. I I think he sells it. You yeah. know, I'm, I don't get any sort of catharsis out of the moment where he's trying to, you know, revive her and he's crying and we're we're just sort of getting his his pathos about, you know, him going through loss. I don't think pigeonholing the loss of his um, son and wife, I think, in this movie works whatsoever. Right. It's it's a bit of a forced. I mean, well, it's, it's just it is, put in uh, there. It's there. It doesn't. Despite Giamatti's good performance, the this you know he 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 really gets into that scene, but yeah, unfortunately, yeah, I was not moved by that moment. Um, I, yeah. I know that I was supposed to be. Obviously, you're supposed to be you know moved by it, and you're supposed to your heart's supposed to break for him and all of that stuff. But it just did not really work. Tonally, it's just all over the place, and I can see a group of people MST three King this thing to death. Well, there's tons of. I'm pretty sure. I mean, I'd, I'd have to look it up, but uh, there, there's like the. Do you listen to the We Hate Movies podcast at all? Uh, no, I should. I'm curious uh, about it. Come on, that it can be quite funny. I'm pretty sure that there must be an episode about this one, and they must really tear it to shreds. But um, but I think. I mean, it's what you say. It's very quirky. The the tone of it. It's it's his attempt, I think, to do kind of a quirky movie. You know, like a like a like a quirky Coen Brothers type of thing. <laughs> With, with like weird characters and but it gets um, it gets lost in the in him trying to be sincere right and then almost having like this weird satirical poke at the conventions of a movie like this with the Bob Balaban character right exactly it was, it's really on the nose um, it's like Kevin Williamson all of a sudden <laughs> right showed it, up to write a scene. Yeah, it's so, you know, and he, I mean, I think Bob Balaban's good. Oh, yeah. 
love Bob Balaban. I, I, I would. I, it would be difficult for me to ever dislike anything that Bob. We're Balaban. movie nerds, of course. We love Bob Balaban. <laughs> so like, I, so he's he's delightful in the movie. I think um, his performance. But the thing is that that was one thing that they really took him a task for. Oh yeah, that's his. Uh, this is his uh, commentary on the critics who tore him who tore him to shreds with the village. So now he's getting back at them for this. And now he's the savior. Right. In this I mean, movie. <laughs> like, and that's, so here's the thing. What do you think of Shyamalan's performance in lady in the water? I am okay with it. Surprisingly. I, I just, it, it feels so winky. I mean, to, to do something like that, to say, I am writing, you know, to actually have a character named Story and have him be a writer and he's going to write the story that's going to save the world. Right. There's it's just, what, I mean, is, that, I, is it driven by ego? I think to some degree, sure, it is. I mean, I, I think that um, the fact that he made Lady in the Water is entirely an ego thing. Yeah, more it's or less. When we were about to talk about the village, and I said, um, "What do you think happened to this guy?" What I think happened to Shyamalan, and it's unfortunate, is that he was ultimately a victim of his own hype. Yeah, uh, you know, like he did what people should never do, and that's that he started to believe his own bullshit, and that's a problem because, you know, The Sixth Sense, huge. All these films came out, and they were comparing him to Spielberg. They were comparing him to Hitchcock. So at some point, if you start to believe that about yourself. Um, you start to lose a little bit of, I would think, you start to lose humility, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, now, you, you see Shyamalan in, like, interviews and whatnot, and he still, to my to my view anyway, he comes off as a generally affable guy. But uh, he does come off as a little bit, like, he lacks a certain self-awareness. Yeah, uh, I mean, on one hand, I mean, I've heard stories of him being difficult on set, but then I think, like, well, Bryce Dallas, Dallas Howard came back to work with him again, and Joaquin Phoenix came back to work with him again. If he was, like, this tyrant that was yeah. very difficult to work with, why would they come back? You know? Yeah, I, I somehow doubt that. I, I, don't, I don't believe... He, he, you see footage of, like, him shooting, you see him in interviews. He seems like an affable guy, but what, what strikes me about him also is that there's a certain naive quality to him. And I think... yeah. I think he probably doesn't really read his reviews. And if he does, he probably just reads the good ones. So, like, if he hears that somebody didn't really like the movie, he doesn't bother reading that review. Um, you know, or maybe he reads one or two of them and he's like, ah, they're wrong. You know, and doesn't really pay attention to what the criticisms are saying. Uh, so, that's why, like, he doesn't, it's like he doesn't, by the time he was able to make Lady in the Water, I mean, he said, no, I can do this. You know, I'm, I'm Hitchcock. I'm Spielberg. I, I can do this movie. I can make this self-indulgent personal story, you know. And he, he was trying to align himself with one of his heroes, was Spielberg. And Well, if Spielberg can make his personal stuff and he, his, his personal fantasies, why can't I do mine? And the thing is, but yeah, that's fine. Go ahead and do that, but you've got to make them relatable, dude. I mean, you, gotta, you, you, you have to make something that people are going to understand. That's true. It's very incoherent. Right, but it's weird to me. Like watching this movie, it does have that, you know, his penchant for sentimentality and mm-hmm. trying to create this fantastical narrative. But I, I also think it, it like, 
he's not making fun of himself. It's certainly not like, you know, David Wayne level sort of parody of a Shyamalan movie. Not at all, no. But (laughs) it's funny that I mentioned that because uh, David Wayne's buddy Michael Showalter shows up in Signs, and I'm like, I can't help but laugh because it's Michael Showalter. Um, But in in this, it's just, there's things in it I, I just can't believe he would not, you know, you know, a kid reading cereal boxes and figure things out. That has to be played for laughs. Sure. I would hope. Yeah. Because <laughs> I, I find it funny. I think I think that's supposed to be charming. Um, I yeah. think stuff that's played for laughs is supposed to be the stuff that, like, obviously the, the, the Bob Balaban character is supposed to be a funny character. Um, uh, the um, the Freddie Rodriguez character who's only working out half of his body or whatever. Yeah. Funny. Like, there's st- um, uh, Sarita Chowdhury, uh, who plays uh, uh, Paul Giamatti, uh, I mean, uh, Shyamalan's sister. Right. Um, she's supposed to be funny. And it is... The, the thing about it is that she is painfully unfunny. So, like, <laughs> like it's it's just... It's kind of weird. Because it's like, I know you're... Uh, the, the, these these exchanges, this banter between you and Sarita Chowdhury are supposed to be hilarious. And it's not happening, man. No. It's not, this isn't funny. Um, and it's kind of, but you know, it's, I, I kind of agree with you. I think, I mean, I think it's a flawed film. Um, it but is I very much appreciate it. I appreciate that he went and did this. I mean, I feel kind of sorry for the fact that they spent so much money on what ended up being essentially like a big budget version of one of those home movies that he puts on the DVD special features. <laughs> um, ultimately, that's kind of what it is. It's just like it's that, but with better acting and uh, production value. Yeah, uh, it's an it's, anomaly. It really is. Made and it's and I guess in that sense, sure, it, it stands as an interesting work. But yeah, it, it definitely doesn't like it's not it. It fails to achieve what he wanted to achieve with it. But I do think it's interesting that that podcast you mentioned defended it as like a cocoon or 80s fantasy, because that's so much what he wanted to do with that. And I just, I guess maybe this comes from an open-mindedness towards just people in general. And, you know, having gone through, uh, you know, an education involving psychology as an undergrad, I find self-indulgence to be an interesting component of filmmaking i don't dismiss it and i know certain people especially will even even say some paul thomas anderson movies are self-indulgent they'll say de palma movies are self-indulgent lady in the water is beyond self-indulgent yes and i just i can't help but get caught up in that fact as i'm watching it like this is so self-indulgent i should hate this but i have the opposite reaction where I just find it weirdly endearing. <laughs> right, yeah, it's charming. I mean, you're, you're getting to know the artist in a way. And uh, you're seeing just how naive he can be. And you're sort of being like, okay, well, I think that uh, on that level that we can be film buffs and just appreciate that, le- just on that level, understanding that it is self-indulgent, but being able to appreciate what he's trying to do as opposed to what he actually manages to do, then, yeah, I guess that's fine. But, uh, but it's a lot to ask of people. You know what's a lot to ask of me? Yeah. The happening. Yes. No, I, I, we have to get to that one. Um, I hate yeah. this movie. 
Okay, you hate it. Uh, the you, end. Probably, <laughs> you hate it for the reason that most people hated it, right? Like, I, like it's obvious. You, um, you hate its stilted dialogue. You hate um, the concept of it. You hate... Uh, Mark Wahlberg. You hate Mark Wahlberg in it. Um, and, oh, man. The moment he's, he shows up as that science teacher... Well, uh, it's, it's hard to take him as a science teacher. Oh, <laughs> like you just like, like there's so, I I don't want to no you know um, all, all all due respect to Mark Wahlberg I th- I think he can be a fine actor in the right sure. way. sure uh, Boogie just, Nights uh, Boogie Great. Nights just his speech pattern doesn't lend itself very well like the the, the way that he talks <laughs> you don't hear um, in intelligence uh, that that's the right, the wrong way to put it um, that sort of intelligence you know. Uh, uh, scientific intelligence coming out of the mouth of Mark Wahlberg. Hey, Billy, what are we going to do about the bees? You know, <laughs> I'm just like, what? Nobody talks in that like that that t- type of tone and inflection. He's just, well, it's silly. It's, it is. It's too silly. It is totally silly. And the thing is, though, but here's so you're curious to hear my defense of the happening, right? Because it's I, it's his version of a B movie. I know. Yeah, yeah, but 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 very specific. Because see, the thing is, uh, I think the reason that that movie didn't work for people, um, it's it's because he miscalculated. There's a miscalculation on on Shyamalan's part. Uh, I think that his approach was both too subtle and too broad at the same time. Hmm. That makes sense. Like, uh, I'll explain. Casting Mark Wahlberg as a science, as a high school science teacher is, is a ridiculous notion. Um, he had to have had, I mean, I, he maybe he really wanted to work with Mark Wahlberg, maybe he believed that Mark Wahlberg could pull it off, or maybe it didn't really matter. I mean, John Leguizamo is convincing enough as a math teacher. That works. Um, John Leguizamo gets, in my opinion, the, the, the film's best scene. Um, the, oh, the, the car! Yeah, like that—that's the film. That—that's one moment where that I think works. Works as drama. Works as suspense. As a, as a like tragic irony. And I think that like Wasamo's performance in that in the film and in that scene in particular. That very, scene works, uh, and the opening before we even the, get to meet Mark Wahlberg. The opening of this movie is great. Oh, it's terrific! The, but that's again, it. <laughs> vital sequence tremendous title sequence with that very nice score by James Newton Howard which has like that sort of pulsating uh, feel to it um, and the credits the way they appear over the clouds and then that opening scene in the park Ugh. and then well and then that opening scene the the, the next uh, the thing with the construction workers how do you feel about the scene with the construction workers jumping uh, leaping to their deaths if you want to talk about you know uh, 9/11 I I really liked it. It really set me up. It 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 got me um it got my expectations pretty high in that moment. And of course, I think that was featured in the trailer. Yeah, it was. So you knew um, it was coming. But is, just the way it plays out, I think it's really effective. It's effective. It's definitely an effective shock moment. There is one thing about it that's a little bit like, okay, like you know, like the, this guy falls and then without just like Mackenzie just fell. And then, and then, like some other guy falls, and he turns around. Davis, and I'm like, how do you recognize these people? They, they just they, they fell like feet from you. You just saw, but you'd have to get a little bit closer to see if it's Davis or Mackenzie or whoever. Um, no, but um, I think when I say that it's it's his version of a B movie, yeah, I think when I say it was too subtle and too broad, 
he was trying to create um, a B movie, I think, and I think he was trying to make it very be very much like the B movies that he's trying to evoke. So if he's trying to evoke like Night of the Living Dead, or if he's trying to evoke Invasion of the Body Snatchers, and you know, obviously by I'm referring to the original versions of these films. Um, and so if you look, people criticize The Happening for having weird, like bad acting and like stilted line deliveries and things like this. And it is true that it has that. But I believe that that's deliberate. I believe that because if you look at like Night of the Living Dead, a classic film, right, the original. But if you really look at it, uh, there's that character in Night of the Living Dead. I, I think he's uh, played by an actor named Keith Wayne. And um, uh, he's the the younger uh, guy. Oh, okay, yeah. And wa- watch the way that guy acts, man. That guy's never been in a movie before. He cannot stop blinking. His line deliveries are stilted as hell. In fact, in Night of the Living Dead, um, the acting is all over the place. I mean, you, um, Dwayne Jones is wonderful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course. Uh, so, but, you know... I guess he was an actor with some stage experience or whatever, but the acting is all over the place in a lot of these B movies. You know, you, you have you have good acting mixed with cheesy acting because you have all kinds of it goes all over the map. Uh, you look at films from the seventies. You look at something like Halloween, you know, which is a great film, but occasionally has uneven acting. Um, you know, and, and I, yeah. I mean, and in the case of those films, it's not on purpose. It's just that what happens is that you're you're working with amateur actors. It's they're low budget films. You you know you you cast your friend in a part and your friend's not a great actor but you still put him in the movie because whatever, um, and so the thing is that that's what ends up happening, and what he I think Shyamalan was trying to make this film have that feeling, um, uh. so I I I I believe that he was trying consciously to evoke that, but I think it's a miscalculation because he expected people to get that. And I don't think that people got that. I think they just saw it as bad acting or they just saw it as as still, you know, because you can't, it just, the reason I think this, here's, here's my, my, my reasoning for it. You're not because, alone, so don't worry. Yeah, yeah, I mean, it just wouldn't make sense to me. You, you, we, we've been talking throughout the entire uh, podcast about his ability at getting great performances out of actors, of being an actor's director working with with guys like who have very strong personas such as Bruce Willis or Mel Gibson or Dennis Leary for that matter and and getting these sort of uncharacteristic performances out of them um and so you think well a guy that does that is somebody who knows how to work with actors so what he just he was just asleep at the wheel for the happening he didn't care I anymore. think so I think you I really believe like he just let them do whatever and he didn't care I think he, he was uh half asleep making this movie. Um, like, I, I understand that argument, especially mm-hmm. in context with how, you know, wide-eyed, literally, Zoe Deschanel is in this movie where she's watching the team, she's like, and then Mark Wahlberg comes in, she's like, oh, look, you gotta watch the news! And <laughs> Right, right. You right. know, I mean, the, the, the cheese factor in their acting is unparalleled, and I... It doesn't mesh well with just like the horrific scenes of suicide happening. Watching, yes. You know, I mean that's that's intense shit, and it's and in contrast, like you know, where something like Lady in the Water actually, I smile and I find a lot of it endearing. 
you know, mm-hmm. where where he tries for comedy here, it seems to just fall flat. The scene where he's t- where Mark Wahlberg's talking to the plant, not funny. Um, right, it's supposed <laughs> to be. It's not funny. But see, people were saying that's unintentionally funny. No, it's not unintentionally funny. It is funny. It's just that you're laughing at it for the wrong reasons. You're laughing at it and not laughing with it. Yeah, and then all of a sudden these kids are getting, sh- you know, shotgun blasts. Right. I mean, it it just veers tonally. Like, you, and, oh, God, why are you I and my lemon drink? <laughs> well, oh, come the, on. Okay. Oh, that whole sequence is awful. No, but, but, okay, like, are you trying to kill me? What? No. <laughs> but, but, like, you're... But come on, man! Like, I I actually think that the the Betty Buckley sequence is the best part of the movie. Oh wow! I do I, because it, it's it's like this miniature. It's like this mini movie in the big movie. It's like this little miniature horror film. Um, <laughs> I, I sort of I would have watched an entire like I would have watched an entire ninety minute thriller about like Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel trapped in Betty Buckley's farmhouse. Like I would have watched that movie. Like that 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 whole thing where she like goes nuts and she's just like bashing her face through the window. I, I think that uh, he creates some really effective moments of shocking violence in the film. And I oh think yeah, that, I mean it was marketed as his first R movie. Yeah, they made such a big deal out of that. Uh, I think, and you, yeah, okay, it's a, it's it has a lot of grisly violence. No, you're 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 on point when you say that the unevenness in tone hurts the film. It does. Um, I, I I don't bring myself to hate it because, like I said, I appreciate again. I appreciate what he's trying to do. Um, when he was trying to make an, a B movie and he was trying to do it stilted, and then he was also trying to put like moments of black humor, like you have that character. I don't know what actor plays him, but the guy that like he's obsessed with hot dogs. Mm-hmm. Uh, hot dogs get a bad rap. They, and like that's a weird dialogue to put in a movie, but it's fine. I mean, he's trying to be quirky. I get that, but yeah, it doesn't mesh well because of the there's an unevenness in tone. You, because you're either going to go all the way and just make it totally like flamboyant and just cartoonish and like that, or you're going to make it really grisly and disturbing. You can't really do it. You can't really have it both ways. No, you and, can't. You can't have, you know, soldier having like a Gomer pile moment, yeah, and then right. sudden, and then suddenly cutting That's- to Mark Wahlberg going, like, okay, now think about science. Think about science. What what would you do in this moment? You're Give a science a- teacher. Give me a second. I'm trying to think. <laughs> That's horrible. Well, yeah, it's it's not. But I think that if the whole if he had decided on a tone, and that's what I mean by the miscalculation part of it. If he had said, "Okay, I'm either going to go totally broad with this and make it really cheesy, like top to bottom, and people will get that it's like a black comedy," or I'm not going to do that and I'm going to make it like a like a paranoia thriller. But you you can't do both, and that's why like. You have a thing like in the film again. I think John Leguizamo was good in it, and I think his character is the best character in the movie because he's the only character that you ever actually feel anything for. But why does he abandon his daughter? Well, okay, it, the, it, the motivation of it. Um, he, I think he at that moment he abandons his daughter because he he thinks that she's going to be safe with Mark Wahlberg. Like he knows that when he's going to look for his wife, yeah, he's there's a chance he might not make it. Or there's a or there's a chance that she'll be dead, and maybe he doesn't want to expose his daughter to that. I can I can relate. I can understand that. It's not it's not uh, you know he's trying to keep his daughter safe, and he knows that she might be in danger if he takes her with him. But he has to find his wife, so he takes risk. You know, it's like like where he goes like well, better for her to you know you know 
I, I don't know. It's it's a weird risk for him to take because I know he figures, well, you know, she might be dead. At least she's still got me. You know, uh, I mean, I know that certainly if it were me, you know, I've got I've, I've got a 13 year old daughter of my own. If it were me, I wouldn't do that. You know, I, I, there's no way like I wouldn't leave her with anyone. Um, but I guess I can understand the character wanting to do it and it, it having like a tragic turn of events. Um, it, it's a contri it's a plot contrivance also so that you can have her with Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel and and um, and Shyamalan had to get rid of John Leguizamo somehow. But it does lead to the, the one dramatic moment in the film that sort of works very well. And exactly, like you can't have a, a, a tragic, sad scene like that in a movie where you also have a guy talking about hot dogs. Or, no. Or, or like the Gomer Pyle soldier or, you know, because some of the suicide scenes, as shocking as they are, also are kind of funny. You know, um, the, like the guy getting his arms ripped off in the zoo cage. You know, I mean, it's great. Was that intentionally supposed to be funny? I, I don't I mean I, I would think maybe because the thing is that it's not it's just such a weird staging you know everybody's just looking at the YouTube video right oh my god look at this and then, like they're all sort of like crowding around the the iPhone it, it's it's a less effective uh, version of like like you said of the scene in the hap in uh, in in signs where Joaquin Phoenix is looking at the um, mm-hmm. newscast so here he's trying to evoke that thing that now happens where we all sort of find that video on YouTube that is shocking and we're showing it to everybody, right? Um, and, again, I don't know if it's supposed to be... I think I think he was... I don't think he meant that to be funny. I think he meant that to be shocking. But I think funnier than that is the scene where the woman listens to her daughter commit suicide over the phone. Calculus. Right, yeah, because he's, she's just like... She's talking to her daughter and then she puts her on speakerphone so everyone else can hear and you're like going... Really? Well, why would she do that? Yeah, people people do not <laughs> act rationally at all I in would, this movie. Right, they they're, make they're, horrible choices. Yes. But so too do characters in other B-movies. You know, that, that's why I, I think that, again, I do think he was trying to do something that was very much in the spirit of the, of the 50s and 60s B-movies that he likes. And I think that that's why he, he put everything at such a heightened level. His mistake with the happening was that he had to kind of choose a tone and um and because he never really found that tone it's kind of all over the place and that's why i totally understand that if people don't like it again i appreciate what he was trying to do but i i do concede that he it didn't it wasn't entirely as successful as it could have been i don't appreciate this one uh yeah it's weird like i understand that, you know, people can point to that and be like, well, you, you're very forgiving about Lady in the Water, but not this one? Well, I don't know. I think a lot of it also has to do with the fact that Mark Wahlberg and Zoe Deschanel play the most unconvincing couple in the history. They have the chemistry of two people on a Tinder date. <laughs> and, like... On a pre-date, actually. On a Tinder... <laughs> when, you're, when you're just texting, before you actually meet. Yeah. Pretty, and then like just the, the the whole final conclusion of what does love conquer all or something? Why does the tr- why do the trees just suddenly stop doing what they're doing? You know, there's a reason for that, but it like it was something that he ultimately uh, chose not to go with. But in the script, because um, the the it was originally called the Green Effect. That was the uh. original the original name of the the script, uh, the Green Effect. Um, and you know how there's this whole thing going on with mood rings throughout the film. Uh-huh. 
like they have that whole discussion at the end about like so you what know color- that that the, it changed color because it meant I was horny. But do you remember what the color of love was? Do you remember? Do you remember? Right. So what was supposed to happen is when they go to embrace on the field, you were supposed to see that the mood rings were green. <laughs> okay. And so like the rationale was that the reason that they survive is because of their love. Oh jeez! Um, like I'm glad that Shyamalan had the good sense to not do that and to just leave it as an unexplained thing because that that at the very least showed some restraint, some instinct, where he was like, "Yeah, that's going too far." That like that's because that would have been too much. That like no, I think that, Fred Willard should have showed up and just <laughs> said, "What happened? Yeah, what happened?" No, the, the thing is because again, yeah, that was supposed to be the reasoning behind it, right? Uh-huh. It was like, their, their love was really strong, but what about the hot dog guy and his wife? I guess their love wasn't that strong. Huh? I don't think their love was strong at and, all. And they loved, and they loved uh, plants, because they had that whole greenhouse and whatever. Um, but yeah, I don't, like, again, I, I can't, I, I can't really uh, fault you for, for not liking the movie. I, I did say I was going to defend it, but really my defense is that. I think that he was just trying to do a B-movie. I don't think that it entirely worked the way he wanted to because of that miscalculation. But there are enough interesting things. And like I said, like the Betty Buckley sequence, I mean, you have to admit that, like, the, this stuff's weird. It's just so weird. Like It is weird. That, that a guy, like, it, it still shows that only Shyamalan could have made a movie. Like, like he's he, he's so keyed into his own quirks and his um, his obsessions and his passions. As ultimately, this is the movie that he made. It still is very much his movie. Um, like, you know, it's, it's got a very unique personality to it. You know, um, it'll be something years from now, maybe I'll just turn on again and with that framework and the fact that there are defenses written about this movie, um, out there, I'll, I'll, I'll try one more time, but I honestly, this is, this is the one from his, like, I understand why. There are such harsh, harsh detractors of his work. Yeah. Um, Based on just how I feel about the happening, where nothing, nothing affects me. Nothing. It's a complete like experience of indifference by the end, where I'm just like, "Well, that happened." No pun intended. But the happening happened. Pretty much. I wish it hadn't. But you know what? I haven't even bothered with this uh, two subsequent films because of uh, my intense hatred for the happening, and I plan to try and watch them, but I just I just didn't get around to it. And since we're running low on time, can you go through them super fast? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, you're, you're talking about Last Airbender and uh, After Earth. Yes. So I, I will say this: Last Airbender is um, is is absolutely it is an absolute pile of horseshit okay uh, it is terribly terribly bad um and well, the thing is like the reason that the last airbender and to lesser degree after earth i think after earth is not a bad movie it's just kind of a whatever movie okay um last airbender just doesn't work at all because he basically tries to cram it's an adaptation of the nickelodeon cartoon show uh avatar the last airbender Right, and it was planned as a trilogy, um, and as far as I know, there I haven't seen this cartoon show. I've never watched it. Um, it's it has its fans. People say it's really good. It's inspired by anime and whatnot. Um, and it, the idea was that each each film was going to 
because it was three seasons. The cartoon show was three seasons. So it is a trilogy in and of itself, right? So basically what The Last Airbender does is it tries to cram uh, an entire season of animated television into a 95-minute movie. And you cannot do that. You just cannot do that. So it's this 90-minute movie that, that, that makes no sense. Um, it crams, you know, six hours worth of storyline into one 90-minute movie. It's just a complete mess. Uh, the only the only things about it that maybe and you know it's poorly cast. Uh, the only things about it that have any value, I suppose, are that it's nicely produced, it's nicely shot. Uh, once again, James Newton Howard, an epic score that the movie does not deserve. <laughs> but it's it's basically just a really boring, um, unintelligible, incoherent fantasy film that uh, it just, I mean, it showed that Shyamalan could shoot a movie like that, but uh, it just, he needed somebody else to sort of, I mean, he needed to do a, get a better script, you know, or yeah. something. It just didn't work. After Earth, um, again, it's it, it shows that Shyamalan has the ability to do like a slick kind of sci-fi standard kind of adventure movie that doesn't have any personality at all. Um, so sure, he can shoot, you know, action scenes, they can look fine, it can be this, it can be that. The only value I'll give After Earth is that, okay, at, at the very least, it is a futuristic, big-budget adventure story, science fiction adventure story, uh, in which Captain Kirk and Luke Skywalker are both black. And, okay. Uh, I, there's value to that. Like, the, the uh, I, sure. I think... It's nice to see that kind of... Di it's a diverse cast. You know, it's essentially... You've got Will Smith, you've got uh, his son... You've got uh, Zoe Kravitz, uh, and so I mean, it's 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 got it's most it's mostly I, I think all the leads are essentially African American actors, um, with very few exceptions, and I that I found refreshing. Like I, I thought, okay, that's it's good that this movie exists. If if only it were a little better, you know, if only it were a little, if only it had a little more personality to it. But I I would uh, I would hope that people uh, are more taken by it. Huh. But I think. Basically, the problem, ultimately, why The Last Airbender, well, The Last Airbender is just terrible, After Earth, whatever, it's just that I think Shyamalan is a, is a good filmmaker when he's in his wheelhouse, and he's clearly not in his wheelhouse when he's making these sort of glossy studio films. And um, That would make sense. That's ultimately why I think that they're just not interesting. You don't want to talk about them even, because there's nothing really there. If, if you're going to watch them, you can watch them for curiosity's sake. Uh, like I'd say, After Earth is fine. It's bland. Uh, Last that's Airbender. what I kept hearing. It's terrible and that's it um and it's because he's not in his wheelhouse that it doesn't work and i think we can finally talk about the one where he finally came back to his wheelhouse which is uh, the visit which honestly it might be my second favorite film of his okay interesting. Which, it, it could again be the surprise element mm -hmm. i have pretty much dismissed him for quite a while mm -hmm. and uh, i mean i know I mean, I'm surprised this didn't come up sooner, but the audience reaction to the fact that he wrote the movie Devil was, I, I, I mean, pretty universal throughout almost every theater when the trailer would pop up. People would seem very intrigued. Yeah. And then suddenly they saw, from the mind of M. Night Shyamalan, and the audience I, I saw it with, they bursted out laughing. Yeah, or just went like, ah. Oh. Yeah, or groaned, right. Yeah, right, yeah, right. But the Devil's pretty good, though. I mean, I, like, I, I mean, it's, I liked it. I don't know, I mean, I, I, I think, 
if you're like me, you, you enjoy like quirky, kind of small indie horror films, which is what Devil is ultimately. It is. Again, it gets I, ridiculous, but that's okay. Sorry, it, it gets a bit ridiculous, but I think that, I mean, it, it's... It's fine. I mean, it doesn't really count. He didn't direct it. He right. Did. I know. That's why we haven't talked about it. I was just going to. But yeah. But uh, but yeah. I mean, it's. I don't. I don't hate Devil. But going back to the visit, yeah, it was a refreshing sort of return to form. I, I think we can agree on. And that. And at the same time, not using his usual refined, kind of uh, controlled. You know, even the languid pace isn't here. It's yeah. it's the found footage method to yeah. filmmaking, which. Right. I know some people are tired of too, but I, when it's done well, when I'm, when I, when I'm, you know, affected by it, I'm all for it. I, I think it still works in a lot of horror films. Yeah. Here it, um, you know, I know some people found it off putting too to make, you know, like an elderly couple, the villains, you know, almost like thinking of their dementia, you know, like just they're, they're sort of evil ways as being a result of dementia, which was uh, uh, not, not the read I had when I first saw it. No, and not at all in my case either, because I think it's pretty clear that it's not the... I mean, no, they're, they're mentally insane. They're not... They're not uh, it's not that, they're, that they suffer from dementia. It's that they, um, they're just, you know, they're, they're not... They're mentally unbalanced people. They, they escape from a mental institution. Correct. So, you know, they're, that's what they are. Yeah, I think the kids are great. I think I think every performance in this is really strong. Again, very um, good. I'm not a fan of the rapping, which I know a lot of people bring up too. That's horrible. I, like I, the thing is, okay, Shyamalan is. Uh, I'll give him this, and that he is something he's shown again and again. He's great at working with kids. He, yeah, he, he definitely brings out very good performances from all his child actors, and, ch- and children are hard to work with. And and see so he. Now, obviously, these are a little bit older, obviously, but still, um, the, they're not known actors, uh, and they really do, they're very good to watch. But that kid with the rapping, again, that's just Shyamalan trying to be funny, and that's the thing. Sometimes what's funny for him is just not funny for everybody else, and it's just kind of obnoxious. And I do remember, like, watching The Visit, at the, at the beginning, it was like these kids were getting on my nerves. You know what I mean? Just, just, like, That's just, normal, though, I think. You know, like, right. I mean, you had the kid rapping. It's like, ah, oh, dude, shut up. And then you had the other girl who was very precocious and very, like, you know, oh, that's that's who this is. Okay. But she's, she's an aspiring very, filmmaker. Aspiring filmmaker. And it's uh, all that, like, sort of on the nose sort of thing. Uh, all the, like, like the the uh, the little references and things, trying to be witty. But uh, But they grow on you. Like, as the film progresses and once they get to the to the house and everything they do start to kind of grow on you and uh so that does work and I, like you you do really care about them by the end of it yeah and i find this movie pretty creepy it is pretty creepy it, it, it's also funny yeah like here's one where he's able to really to do that like i think uh, like it, it really the 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 parts that are creepy are creepy and the parts that are darkly humorous are genuinely funny agreed um, and then he's able to combine both in the single most horrifying use of feces, feces that I've seen in a film. That the one that one part where like the 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 um, where the grandfather car- where the where the guy takes out his diaper, like just walks up to the kid and goes like, "You don't like germs, do you?" Splat. That uh, is- I yelled out, "Oh shit!" in the theater. <laughs> yeah, that's just like I, I don't remember last time I cringed so audibly. Looking at so that that's that is very very effective as well. Um, so yeah, the visit. Um, 
uh, yeah, it, it shows a return to form that has actually, uh, and yeah, like I'm I'm one of those guys that doesn't really like the found footage thing, but again, when it's done well, I liked I liked the way it was done here. So um, yeah, and he he found a reasoning for it that was interesting. He was able again to explore his own personal sort of obsessions in this film. It, it goes back to like we know that he used to make these home movies that he includes in his DVDs. And now he gets to sort of do a little throwback to that by this story, this adventure horror story of this child who wants to be a filmmaker. Right. So I'm he's really spe- he's getting back to basics. He's sort mm-hmm. of going back and you know trying to get back in touch of, with his strengths and what he does well in creating you know like a suspenseful and uh, very subtly creepy um, sort of situation. It's, I mean. I also think, you know, unlike something like Lady in the Water, where it's like the opposite of being universal, I think I think most people in general have had an uneasy feeling visiting relatives that they never met before. Yep. Not to this extreme, but it's you know I mean I certainly remember visiting new people as a kid maybe even younger than the kids in this film, but just being anxious about it or just when they did yeah. something weird, I'd find it questionable. So I think that works. No, it's, it speaks to a pretty, this is a pretty standard thing and it's not, I mean, not, not to sound ageist or anything, but it's, it's just a fact, at least in a child's eyes. Yeah. Old, old people are creepy. They just are. We, you know, I mean, uh, there, there's, there's a certain creepy factor, you know, per, particularly. So uh, he, Shyamalan is drawing on 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 genuine childhood, um, uh, not necessarily fears, but let's say discomforts. Yeah. Uh, and so yeah, the whole thing about I mean, it's not, it's it's a normal thing. If 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 you're a kid who spent any time in suburbia growing up, you know, there's always like that old couple that lives down the block or whatever that you, you know, you find them creepy when you're a kid. It's just I mean, it's just kind of normal. And he's also coding it a little bit in sort of a dark fairy tale, Hansel and Gretel. Oh yeah, the Hansel and Gretel thing is there. It's it's definitely there with the like, oven. Like that's the thing that they ended the trailer with. Yeah. And my immediate thought was like, well, this is his take on Hansel and Gretel, and that's going to be the big twist. Yeah, and it's it's a that, but that's a great scene too. It's like, yeah. Could you clean the oven? You got to get in there. Just get in there. And like, and then she's sort of like. The way that she crawls in there, and then like that's 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 pretty. That's a good shocking scene, right there. Yeah, and and there's an effective jump scare involving, you know, um, the girl deciding to put out the camera in the living room or whatever. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, I again, I think there's some tropes from the found footage history um, that pop up throughout this movie. That again, like maybe. Uh, you know, in another context, I'd be like rolling my eyes or thinking, well, that's been done before. Mm-hmm. For some reason, I watched this and, you know, I got I got pretty caught up in it. I wasn't as like critical or thinking, well, this is M. Night Shyamalan. I don't know how I feel about it. Or, you know, the, just some of the reservations I might have had. You know, I, and plus I just, I just like I said, it's, it's in a, a universal story mm-hmm. and you're worried about the kids um, and, you know, I mean, I will say that maybe the final payoff with the mom, again, it's not as strong as it should be. Yeah, but I, it's it's fine. 
Yeah, it's that, and then like they again, it's a story about dealing with loss. Sure. Um, you know, like it, and uh, the, again, the running theme, and yeah, I think that the final button where the, he tries to put in an, an emotional button, so you have that little epilogue with the mom, sort of uh, uh, getting emotional at the end, and all of that. I mean, it's okay, but by by that by that time, the tension has been diffused, and you sort of like you start getting your coat. You know, you sort of like, yeah. all right, this is over, right? I, we're going to leave now, right? So. Um, uh, yeah, it, is, it isn't as effective as it was in, like, The Sixth Sense or something. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's fine. But, yeah, again, it's it's a return to form for him. And I think it was, like you said, it was expectation. You know, by that time, you just – things had gone – he'd fallen out of favor to the point where you're like, well, let's see what this is. And it was a pleasant surprise, I guess, for a lot of people to just see him sort of go back to his roots and just do, like, a tight thriller – with a twist and a, and a, a, a pretty good twist too. I mean, it's one that you don't really see coming, and it's effectively handled. I think. Yeah, I completely agree. And again, I'm not the biggest fan of him. I, I've almost every movie. There's something in there that keeps it from being something that I'm. You know, I would be I'd be excited to revisit or deconstruct further. You know, we we talked about how he's able to bring forth a genre or a genre convention and subvert your expectations or twist it up a little bit or, you know, examine the human condition in an interesting way. There's just certain scenes or moments in particular that really stand out that sometimes affect me to the point of not being able to give them a pass. But at the same time, I can't deny that he's actually a good filmmaker when he wants to be and he's done it successfully on a number of occasions um and the, the cinematography the cinematographers he's worked with and the scores are always consistent so i mean there's things to love about his work and he definitely has a unique uh personal voice right that applies to his work so i think all of that stuff is just you you sort of you have to look at that um i you know, we need our odd ducks, don't we? I mean, we need those odd duck filmmakers because there aren't that many of them. So that's why. I mean, he he, he maybe he doesn't always knock it out of the park, but I I like that he's out there making his his films because I know that like with with a few exceptions, I know that I'm going to see something different when I go see one of his films. Whether we'll it see. Works, we'll see what maybe. holds in store for yeah. Split. Yeah, I'm, I'm curious of that. I mean, it, again, they're being very secretive about the plot, but you know, I mean, it, it does look like he's back. He's back to making thrillers. I think you know what he he tried his hand at some like glossy studio stuff, and he realized that that's not really what he wants to do. And so it looks like he's back doing what he enjoys doing, which is to make thrillers. And yeah, I, I want to get around to it. I haven't gotten around to it, but I want to watch that the TV series that he produced. You know, Wayward Pines again. It's almost like I'm sounding like a broken record. <laughs> Starts out really strong and uh, really made me curious as it goes along. Has a lot of strengths, has a lot of interesting components to it. Doesn't always work. Has certain moments I can't stand. The ending, I don't know if it necessarily sticks to the landing to where I'd be excited about season two. I don't even know if a season two is coming. I would it recommend is. it to you, though, because you're, you're even more forgiving than I am. Yeah, well, I watched the first episode of it um, on Hulu, and then I said I would go back to it. And, I mean, I, I, I liked what 
the way it started. So yeah, I'm, I'm definitely going to get back to it. But uh, yeah, yeah, I'm curious. I'm, I'm definitely curious. You know, so it's it's B minus C plus material. All right. But it's interesting, and there's a good mystery at the core to where I wasn't bored. All right. Well, I mean, I, I was certainly intrigued. So yeah, I'll 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 definitely watch it. Yeah, looking looking ahead, you know, it's I want to give this, you know, his next movie. Um, I want to say I, I want to say I'm looking forward to it based on the fact that um, Anya Taylor Joy from The Witch is in it. Oh, okay, is, and that. That's a movie that I want to see, by the oh, way. Oh, God, you got to see that, like, now. You should just the hang w- up on me and go run to your theater right now, <laughs> if it's still right, well, Yeah, uh, well, I'm, I'm in La Paz, Bolivia. It hasn't opened here yet. Oh, I'll, yeah, I'll, that's true. That's got to be rough. I'll, pro- I'll probably catch it on video or something soon enough. But his next movie, unfortunately, opens in January of next year. And January releases in the U.S., I don't have high hopes for. Based on my experience of having to watch all the new releases for the first couple months for a radio station here, right? I had to sit through some awful stuff in January. Well, I mean, it's traditionally thought of as a dumping ground. Right? Yeah, that's um, why I'm worried. <laughs> but, you know what? Let's. I mean, it's you never know. I mean, no, you never know. No, 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 no. I know. I'm yeah, gonna. So. I'm gonna go. You know, I, yeah. because I had a good time with the visit. Um, I'm willing to uh, earned your goodwill for at least one more ride. Yeah, like on the visit at the very least. It won't be as bad as the happening, I'm sure. Anyway, let's end this on a positive note. What are your top three M Night Shyamalan films? Okay, so what is it like three, two, one? Is that is that how we do this? Yeah, that's pretty much how we. All right, I guess so. I guess for me, number three would be uh, the Sixth Sense. Uh, Still very strong, uh, effective psychological drama. Uh, and then two and one are sort of neck and neck, but, uh, so two is unbreakable, I guess. Um, and one is the village, although I could, they could easily switch places for me, but I think that they're both very effective and unusual, uh, explorations of, um, of genre and style and very interestingly stylized works that show him as a, as a unique filmmaker. And that's why I pick, Unbreakable in the Village is like my top two. Good summation. Um, number three for me would also be The Sixth Sense, mm-hmm. which um, you know, like you said, it still it still works. It you know, there's despite reservations, it still um, gets to me, especially in that final moment in the car. Mm-hmm. Number two is The Visit. A welcome surprise in every way. Really got to me. It's probably the scariest of his movies for me, at least. And number one is Unbreakable, like we said. Great. Yeah. yeah. Well, thanks, Eric. This was a fantastic conversation. You really opened my eyes even more on a couple of his films. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me. I've, it's something I've been wanting to do for a while, and it's really been a pleasure to talk to you, talk with you about films. And stuff, yeah. So. Well, we'll we'll try and do this again in the future. Hopefully, next year we'll we'll have you on for someone else that I'm. You know, even if it's somebody I'm not as crazy about, I still love talking about it. That'd be but, great. But but the director's work. Um, so where can we you know find more from you, sir? Plug away. Okay, well, um, I would love for people to check out the uh, Pachamama Films uh, website, and that will lead them to to the work that we've been doing. So that's uh, Pachamama, uh, P A C H A, Mama M A M A Films dot com. 
and if you want to check out, keep keep tabs on me on uh, Letterboxd. You know, I, I post there pretty regularly. My uh, uh, Eric Antoine on Letterboxd. I'm sure you can find me there. And I do have a blog, the Eric Antoine Network, that I almost never update. So just keep tabs on me on Letterboxd, and please check out my production company. Um, and uh, that'd be great. Thanks. Yeah, will do. Um, as far as uh, the show is concerned, you have a really good bonus episode uh, with some interviews coming up that I can't wait to share with everybody. And the next official episode will be probably the first or second week of May. And it's a big deal for me because we'll be, I'll be joined by my talk show radio hero from WGN. The man responsible for turning me into a movie freak is Nick DiGilio. And he's coming on for a, a, a doozy of an episode. The one, one that everybody's been pining for. It is Martin Scorsese. Oh, I can't wait to hear one, man. Yeah, I, th- I, th- I think you're not alone with that sentiment, sir, because people have been like, you haven't done him yet? Yeah. Now we're finally getting to him, and it's going to be great. And then, of course, after that um, extravaganza, we got Patrick Rapole returning in late May for Spike Lee, which, man, May is my birthday month, and holy cow, what a double bill with those two directors and guests. Yes, that'll be fun. Absolutely. So until next time, please visit directorsclubpodcast.com. Send me an email with all your comments and feedback to directorsclubpodcast at gmail.com. Follow me on Letterboxd at Instant Gym, Twitter at Instant Gym, all that good stuff that's linked in the show notes as well. Well, I'll be more than happy to talk with you in a couple weeks for the Scorsese episode. Cannot wait. Thanks again, Eric's, for being on the show. Thank you. And thank you to everybody who listened. We'll talk to you soon. Good night.